Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 101, brought to you by Wicked Tree Gear. Today I'm joined by the urban bowman, Taylor Chamberlain, and we're covering urban bow hunting, hunter heritage, and saddle hunting. So stay tuned. Alright, alright, what is up everyone? Happy Wednesday to you. Happy New Year to all of you out there listening. I hope everyone had good, uh, a good and safe New Year's. Um, mine, you know, as I've gotten older has gone, uh, has gotten less and less, um, I guess, uh, how, how can we say this, less and less active or dramatic, uh, if you will. You know, it, it used to be, a, you know, being in a band, I was usually playing on New Year's somewhere and, and stuff like that. And, you know, pretty... Uh, what I'll say is pretty good, pretty good party time, pretty good party action. Um, and to now, I think I started falling asleep uh, around oh nine thirty after my wife, uh, daughter, and I had our New Year's Eve traditional New Year's Eve dinner of a very seventies and retro fondue. Um, but it was it was fun nonetheless. Uh, of course, all the fireworks and stuff go off around the house and kind of freaks the dog out. So that's always that's always a bit of a spectacle. But that's probably about the highlight of our excitement for the. Uh, for the New Year's Eve holiday, but I hope everyone out there had a good one, whatever you were doing, and hope it was uh, hope it was safe. Um, not a whole lot to update as far as hunting hunting related goes or hunting related activities go uh, on this go around. I did get a, a chance to get out and get one late season hunt in so far. It was pretty much a rainer. Uh, I was in a blind, um, sitting along a, a food source, and just uh, didn't see anything. It was more of a, I guess, probably an action of getting out in the out in the uh, outdoors a little bit. Didn't have high hopes necessarily for the hunt. Was hoping to probably, you know, maybe take a doe. I was actually hunting with my buddy Wilson, uh, who you guys heard of or heard from on a few podcasts ago. It seems like he and I, every time we we don't hunt together, we see deer. Anytime we do hunt together, we do not see deer. Um, but hopefully we'll turn the tide on that here in the, during the course of the late season. Cause, uh, we both enjoy spending some time and, you know, hunting together and getting to hang out. So we'll continue to do that. Hopefully we'll get to fill some, hopefully we'll get to fill some tags. And then of course I'll, I'll be heading into the swamp to give that one last sachet here, you know, really going to pull a camera card in there and see if anything has returned since, uh, since rut. Um, you know, I'm not sure what's going to be going on in there. It's it, like I said, you know, many times before this is the first year hunting that piece. So. You know, a lot of what I'm doing this year on there is just, you know, really learning what's going on on there. And then I do plan to try to make it back to 
my dad, since I do have that uh, Wicked Greens food plot that I want to try to hit hit up because I haven't had a chance to hit that up during late season once the weather kind of shifted and got cold. So I'm hoping to make it back there to do a set, you know, near that. Don't know that I'll sit right over top of it necessarily, um, but probably, you know, somewhere somewhere where deer probably, you know, funnel through on their way to it. Um, there's, I guess there's two setups that I'd really be kind of eyeing for that, uh, for that spot. I have contemplated actually putting a ground blind in, in one area because uh, what I've seen on cameras, they like to kind of pop out in this one specific area. And there's really not any trees to get a, a any type of saddle or, or stand or anything in. So um, I was thinking of possibly ground blind hunting that, but we'll see if we make it back because I got a a little bit of a busy January coming up. ATA will be coming up here, um, you know, in the next two two ish weeks or whatever. And I'll be there for uh, for a little while. Of that and I have, of course, the the project I've been kind of alluding to um, on the previous podcast. It's about to kick off and get launched. Um, so I have some work to do with that. So I'm hoping that I'm able to get out and get a couple more hunts in and hopefully fill at least one of the, one of these other doe tags, maybe a buck tag if we get lucky. Um, but we'll just have to see how the rest of my January shakes out. But uh, we have a great show today. I, you know, I won't belabor this up front too much. You know, I definitely want to get into uh, talking to Taylor. Um, you may have seen him on the a recent First Light video that was put out, a First Light short film that was put out about urban bow hunting. He hunts. He doesn't. It's not exclusively that he hunts uh, in urban areas because he does get out and you know do some you know what we'll call bigger woods hunting. It's not big woods necessarily, but you know traditional uh, what I'll call rural deer hunting um you know he does get out and, and get a chance to do that uh on a couple different occasions during the course of the year but by and large you know he does a lot of his hunting if i would you know say the majority of his hunting in and around the area that he lives uh, near dc um so therefore as you can imagine you know there's a lot of uh, urban areas there's an urban it's a densely populated urban area so lots of houses lots of structures and and, and things like that so um, that's where he's doing a lot of his hunting which is something that i've started kind of doing this year as i live outside of philadelphia and kind of encounter um, some similar, you know, similar type of uh, similar things in terms of developments, you know, homes, buildings and things like that. And trying to find the little nooks and crannies where deer might be hiding. Um, he hunts, uh, you know, a crazy amount of days, um, you know, well over 100, probably pushing 200 days a year that he's actually out in the timber. Because where he's at, there's a the season, I believe, is all, all year round uh, to a degree. Um, so he's a guy that gets a lot of saddle time in. He's a saddle hunter too. So we talk about that a little bit and then we actually cover, you know, a decent amount of ground, just kind of talking about, um, hunting, its perception, its heritage, and you know, how we can be better stewards of hunting, uh, particularly whenever you hunt and you know, when you live and hunt in these urban areas, because a lot of the folks you're encountering when you're hunting their property or whether you're trying to recover a deer or whatever the case might be, these folks probably aren't, um, super knowledgeable about hunting. Um, certainly if they do have any type of, um, understanding of what hunting is, it's probably skewed, you know, and I'm not going to say everyone, but I'm going to say it's probably heavily skewed for most of them, uh, with the stereotypes that we do not particularly want to want to portray or be known for. Um, and so we talk a little bit about that and the importance around those encounters that you have, um, when you are hunting in these urban areas and how important they are in the overall, um, general population understanding of hunting and acceptance of it so with that we'll go ahead and get ready to get cracking with taylor uh, but before we do that let's take a quick second to talk about our partners that continue to help us make this podcast possible we're brought to you by wicked tree gear the longest lastest fastest cutting toughest tree trimming equipment you have ever used simply put the toughest saws on earth how tough are they tough enough to come with a lifetime warranty and right now when you visit wickedtreegear.com use the promo code truth at checkout 
and get a 20% discount on your Wicked purchase. We're also brought to you by Exodus Outdoor. The new Trek is a byproduct of the, all the consumer voices who have been excited about what Exodus trail cameras have to offer but just can't fit a $200 camera in their budget. And that's all right. A budget-friendly camera backed by the industry's leading warranty is now here. The Trek is $145. It has the same proprietary shell design as the Lift Series cameras, same five-year war- uh, warranty, unmatched customer service policies, photo, video, time-lapse, and hybrid modes, all with a simple single-line backlit LED display. And you also get about 20000 Images on a set of lithium batteries, so you save yourself some cash Ola on batteries there as well. If you'd like to learn more, head over to ExodusOutdoorGear.com and check them out. If you dig what you see, use the promo code TRUTH at checkout and save yourself 20 bucks. We're also brought to you by Tecamani Seed. Everything is bigger in Texas. No matter if you're in the South, Midwest, or Northeast, Tecamani has your food plot seed needs covered. See what I did there? A little alliteration. Visit Tecamani.com and check out other product or their product selector tool. To help you pick the right seed for your food plot, use promo code TRUTH at checkout and save 20%. You might be saying, Clint, it's the end of the season. The growing season's over. Why would I ever think about doing a food plot well? The reason being, or why would I ever think now about beginning to do food plots well? It's because frost seeding is not too far away, and you definitely want to get a jump on that for your properties or for your plots that you can frost seed, and there's never... It's never too early to start planning for next year's food plots. So with that, we have a great show. We're going to go ahead and get Taylor on the line. Hope you all enjoy it. Thanks for listening. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. And today I have on Taylor Chamberlain. Some of you out there listening might know of him from a recent film he did with First Light, but he is a diehard bow hunter. He is an urban bow hunter, and he hunts. That's part of what we're going to talk about today a little bit. And he's also a diehard saddle hunter, if I'm not mistaken. How's it going, man? I'm awesome. How are you? I'm doing good, man. So I'm stoked to have you on. I know we had a nice conversation, almost a podcast before the podcast. <laughs> yeah, our pre-podcast, our <laughs> appetizer. Yeah, you got you got a pre-game. Speaking of appetizers, dude, my wife has a friend over today. Um, you know, it's it's the holiday season, so you know, people are passing through the house and stuff like that. And I, I gotta tell you, dude. I'm ready for the holiday season to be over because I'm ready for all the food to be gone because I do nothing but like walk by and graze. I feel like like I'm in a constant state of feeling like I could throw up. Let's just yeah. put it that way. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's fantastic. You know, my my wife loves to bake, oh, so yeah. I'm always uh, quality testing the baking baked goodies that are coming out of the oven, and our house just smells like you know a chocolate chip factory. Yeah, so it that doesn't suck for me, but. Uh, in a month from now, when I've gained like 15 pounds from <laughs> yeah. eating all this crap, exactly. <laughs> raising on all the all the food at the uh, dining room table, I've, I definitely will regret it. Yeah, exactly. I just kind of throw, I just kind of throw all my, you know, I usually eat pretty healthy, so I throw all that out the window during this time of year, and then I also, you know, I, unfortunately, I get a little lazy on the workout on the workout too, which usually creates some, some pain in, you know, just after the, uh, the first of January, the first couple of weeks of January, when I get back on the, uh, back on the horse, so to speak. But, uh, you're right, man, this time of year wreaks havoc on, on the old, uh, on the old weight gain front. That's for sure. Yeah. It's not friendly to the waistline, but, uh, that's why you have new years come up. So you can just, you know, make promises that you'll hit the gym that, most people won't fulfill after a couple of weeks. <laughs> right, exactly. You know what does the best for me, man, is if I actually have a Western hunt planned, like yeah. I have no problem getting ready. And it's like I get into good shape and I'm good to go. But it's like if I don't have a Western hunt, I'm like, you know, I can whitetail hunt slightly out of shape. Like I'm in pretty yeah. good shape. So I can I can get it done without being like, you know, 
hiking at 12,000 feet for 15 miles shape. You know what I mean? But a hundred percent. I, uh, I think everybody in their life should go out to the Rockies and try to hunt elk and, and that will put you in a fitness routine faster than anything else. Oh, because yeah. I did that three years ago. Now, um, I went out for opening week of elk season in mm-hmm. September, uh, kind of near Eagle, Colorado. And, <laughs> I was nowhere close to ready and I got smoked by the mountains and felt like a quarter of a man. And I just, <laughs> right? I remember sitting there going like, I'm coming back and I'm going to kick the, the crap out of this mountain at some point in my life. Yeah. And, uh, I look forward to doing that. I'm actually heading to Idaho, uh, in September, uh, coming up. I'm trying to put a trip together with a couple buddies and, um, I'm like, I was telling one of them the other day, I was like, I need to start jogging now. Right. Like with, with weights on my back and started playing because I mean, you know, as you mentioned in the intro, like I'm an urban hunter, dude, I walk 50 yards to a tree stand, hundred <laughs> right. yards to a tree stand. I'm not used to, to hiking 12 miles with a ruck on my back. You know, yeah. it's just, it's a different world at altitude. Mind you, I'm, I'm also a flatlander. Like, right. I live at sea level. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Man, you got everything working against you. I did yeah. a, I did a hunt, I guess it was two years ago, and I was fortunate, you know, the, the, two of the guys I was going with, one was my cousin and one was a good friend of ours, and they go out pretty much every year. And uh, and then one of our friends actually lives in Montana, and he works for um, the U.S. Forest Service out there, so he's always in the mountains, and he's he's a hell of a hunter, too. Um, and so I kind of knew what I was getting into, and, and on, on top of that, the, our buddy who lives in Montana runs, like, Spartan races and stuff like that, so he is, like... He looks like someone chiseled him out of marble, essentially. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like I knew going out there that I was going to be hunting with him. I was like, dude, I got to be in good shape. I was like, otherwise, like, I'm just going to get killed. I was like, I'm just not going to hang. So I actually, dude, I trained like a madman where it, I think I was down to like 145 pounds before I left for the Oof. for the trip. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm like 5'8", so it's like that's not too terribly skinny. But like I was doing like three to five mile runs with like a 40 pound, uh, 40 pound weight vest. And I was doing all my, all my uh, resistance workouts with a 40 pound weight vest on. Then I started doing, um, marathon sprint training where you do like interval, interval sprints. Mm -hmm. And I was doing that with a 40 pound vest. And that was like, dude, I was in like diesel shape and I went out there and was like, I didn't have any altitude sickness, like no, nothing. Like it was the first day I could tell I had, I could tell the air was thinner. And then after that I was good. I was good to go. Um, so I played the, uh, I played the game right. Cause I knew, I knew if I didn't those dudes, cause my, my buddy would just like take off. Like he doesn't take even a bottle of water with him. You go out to hike all day. He doesn't take food. He doesn't take any water. He doesn't take a compass. He doesn't take anything. He just, he's like, a, he's a legit, a mountain man. And he just goes. That's amazing. Well, first of all, it sounds like you were training for the NFL combine. But I mean, um, I I was the opposite of that. I had like three compasses. I had one like tied to my neck. I had like five gallons of water in the back. I mean, it was, it was bad. It was, we were joking. It was like city boys head West because I didn't have a effing clue what I was doing. Right. Yeah. Uh, And that was, that was pretty obvious. I didn't even see an elk. I heard a bugle, which was pretty Mm -hmm. cool. Nice. Um, yeah, it's all right. relative. Yeah. The standards went down pretty quickly from <laughs> right. once I saw the terrain that we were partying in. Right. That was, it was like, you know, I think if we just get like an opportunity at uh elk, that is good. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, dude, the thing is, is like, you know, it 
for folks who have not gone out and done that, it's one of those things where it's like, I always say like, man, if you're a hunter, especially if you're a bow hunter, like even if you think you might not like to hunt elk, dude, just do yourself a favor and take that trip because it is, you will see some of the coolest landscapes and the coolest stuff you'll ever see um, on, on that type of trip. We were pretty lucky where we saw elk. Um, we actually got one. I went the full draw on, on one and I saw a really, really nice six by six. I just couldn't get a shot at. Um, so we got into, got into a few, I had a couple opportunities at some mule deer that I just couldn't seal the deal on. Um, so it was a pretty, it was a pretty good trip, but you know, I was the same way where I was taking like a pile of water, like the first like two days and like the third day in, you know, I had a hand piece bear spray and, you know, a pile of water in my pack by the third day. I had no bear spray, no handpiece, and no, and like, like a bottle of water. <laughs> and it was all like halfway up the mountain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was like, just, just get rid of, getting rid of weight. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I'm not carrying this stuff anymore. I was like, that was the one of the kind of, uh, one of the criteria for me to go is my wife was like, you need to be carrying bear spray with you and so on and so forth. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll carry it. And it's like, I carried it like the first two days. And I was like, man, anything that is not necessary, I am ditching. So, yeah, for sure. But we got off on a tangent there a little bit, but I want to kind of bring us back to uh, back to Whitetails. I feel like we know a lot about you already, but for those out there who haven't seen the film and maybe aren't as aware of, of who you are and, and, and what you do, if you wouldn't mind, just give us a little bit of background about yourself, where you live, where you're from, what you do professionally, and then, of course, what you're, what you're doing in the Whitetail world. Well, if you haven't seen the awesome film that uh, my buddies over at Captured Creative and First Light made, definitely check that out. It's on YouTube. I highly recommend it. Uh, Great film, the, by the way. Thanks, man. I All I had to do was stand in front of the camera and try to look pretty. It, they had the real work at hand when, with trying to make me look pretty and make me look good. <laughs> but no, it, it was uh, it was a blast, man, just hanging out with those guys and, and making the making the film. But um, So my name's Taylor Chamberlain. I'm a diehard whitetail fanatic i live right outside washington dc uh, which most people probably have heard of if you haven't heard of that you should probably stop driving and google it, google um, it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so my uh my main passion i'm i'm a real estate developer uh so i build houses uh, mostly residential homes we do some commercial work um and when i'm not working i am uh, hunting so uh for people that aren't familiar with the DC area, we have a huge overabundance of whitetail, uh, somewhere in the tune of, you know, our, our, our carrying capacity should be in the 12 to 14 deer per square mile. Um, we have so many deer here. We're not able to actually quantify how many deer we have. Wow. The closest estimates are in the 400 to 450 deer per square mile range. Wow. Yeah. So like, if you're if you look at a nighttime shot with a flare of you know parkland for example it just looks like the anthill has been had the top kicked off of it and they're running everywhere wow um yeah it's 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 a major problem because they're just you know they're destroying the the forest the browse line is ridiculous mm-hmm. and, and we can go into big detail on that but um because of that overabundance of whitetail we're able to hunt year-round here and with a bow and arrow you can hunt on private property uh the seasons are, are a little you know a little trickier than just open season have out and boys but um you know you're able to hunt 12 months out of the year seven days a week 52 weeks a year and uh it's really interesting it's it's pretty cool what you can see and experience and learn uh when you spend you know a full year hunting deer so I tend to be able to hunt anywhere 
uh, from 150 to 200 days a year. And uh, last year, when I found out that my wife was pregnant, um, I spent every day I possibly could in the tree stand because I was terrified that it might go away. Uh, so I, th- I think I hunted like 235 or 240 days uh, last year. So if it was not like raining sideways or blowing ice, I was in a tree. Um, wow. And, you know, with that many that many days you get to spend in a tree, obviously you get to harvest a lot of deer. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I kill anywhere between – 30 and 60 deer a year, 40 and 60 deer a year. Um, some years, you know, much higher than that in the, you know, 75 to hundred plus range. So, wow. um, yeah, it's, we're not hurting for meat at our house. I um, guess not. <laughs> and, and what's, what's really cool in Virginia, we have a program called hunters for the hungry, where we're able to donate, uh, a deer that's been harvested to a butcher and it's free of charge for the hunter the butcher gets paid by this program hunters for the hungry to process the deer. And then it goes to local food shelters to feed the homeless and less fortunate. Um, so yeah, it's a great way to take something that we have an overabundance of, uh, which is a natural resource and use that to help people that, that need help. So it really, really helps everybody out. And, um, you know, it helps me out a lot because one, there's no way I'd know what to do with that many deer. And two, um, you know, I, I have a lot of people and we can go into this, uh, in detail, but you know, where I am, there's not a lot of exposure to hunters, right? Uh, the people that I'm talking to to get permission really have never met people that hunted for the most part, or if they have, you know, it's like a cousin or a distant relative and they're for the most part indifferent on hunting. And when they find out that a lot of the food is going to feed the homeless or feed, uh, the less fortunate, the needy, that tends to be the tipping point that gets me permission on property. Wow. So okay. uh, it's, it's all good all across the board there. Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting because, I mean, I know that QDMA did a survey. I want to say it was last year where they talked a little bit about I, – I don't remember the, act, the, the precise kind of premise of the survey, but they were doing a survey to kind of get an understanding of people's feelings – about hunting, you know, whether the, whether it's, you know, hunting for sport or whether you call it sport, I guess was the way it was phrased, whether you call it sport or whether it's for, for meat or for whatever, whatever the case might be. And it came back resoundingly that folks, you know, are okay with hunting if it's hunting for meat, you know what I mean? And so I think that it's really, really cool um, that, you know, in your area, you have a, you know, a, a situation set up where folks can, you know, give back to the folks who are less fortunate and it can go back to, you know, basically to be a clean form of protein for people as opposed to eating, you know, less than ideal, you know, forms of, you know, forms of nutrition, which is really cool. And then on top of it, it kind of opens up the door for a conversation, you know, with, uh, you know, with, with those who are, are non hunters, which is rad. I totally, totally agree. And on top of all that, I mean, I've had, um, probably half a dozen homeowners now, ask me to teach them how to hunt because they want to figure out how to get a cleaner source of protein for their families. Mm-hmm. So it's almost come full, full circle where, you know, I, I think that more people nowadays than, than ever in the distant past care about the quality of the food they're putting in their body. And, mm-hmm. and if anybody who's into, you know, personal health or just quality of food that you're eating in general, if you look at, 
kind of what's in our food now mm-hmm. and what's not in a deer uh, or how much cleaner that food source is, how could you not want to eat that over something that you weren't fully connected with in the harvesting process of and you're unsure of, of its quality of life or what it was eating or what, you know, stuff got squirted into it or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you're able to source local organic grass fed protein, wouldn't you want that? And everybody's like, Oh, of course, right. Well, that's in your backyard. And that's right. what I'm trying to, you know, reduce for you for free. So, um, I actually have a, a doctor, uh, who's a client of mine who he is not a hunter at all. Uh, he's actually, I'd say a little left of center on, on hunting in right. general. However, uh, he's convinced that all of the health, well, the majority of the health problems in our country are directly or indirectly related to the food that we're eating and, and the processed food and just the quality of the, of our protein sources. Mm-hmm. And so he has me come hunt his property and give him the deer that I'm harvesting. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, through him, I've gotten the door opened up to a ton of other properties for other doctors uh, that he is friends with that are in that same uh, mindset. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, you look at that. I mean, how could you not want to just put venison on your family's table as opposed to, to beef and chicken and all that? So Yeah. I mean, one of the things I always tell folks is, you know, there's a reason why – like you can take an elk, right, that you kill on a mountain or or a deer, whatever the case might be, and you could literally carve off a piece of meat and you could eat it raw and you would be fine, right? The reason you have to cook beef and all these domesticated, you know, forms of protein, cook the life out of it for the most part, or that they suggest suggest that you do, is because you're really cooking the impurities out of out of the animal that they've been kind of injected with to get them to a point to be harvested or to be, you know, to be slaughtered or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, Ooh. so that's, you know, that, that's kind of, you know, I guess rule number one is like, if I can eat it raw, then it's gotta be, gotta be clean and it's gotta be good. Because if you think back to, you know, we don't even have to go back to prehistoric times or caveman times, I guess it would be a better way to put it. We could go back to as early as like the, you know, the, you know, I won't say civilizing, but, um, kind of taking over the West, if you will, you know, from whenever Native Americans kind of ruled the, the Western Plains and so forth. It wasn't like they had like a way to tell something was like medium well done. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It wasn't like they were looking at a, you know, a piece of buffalo or a piece of venison on a stick cooking it over the fire going, yeah, that looks like it's probably, you know, 175 degrees. You know what I mean? It's like, no, they would put it on the fire and then whenever it looked like it was about right to them, they ate it or they didn't, you know what I mean? And they weren't any worse off for it. Um, it's interesting that that doctor brought up the whole idea of like the illnesses and stuff like that. And now we're totally not talking about deer hunting, but we are in a roundabout <laughs> way, but the, uh, you know, it's just interesting because I was listening to a podcast, um, and there was a doctor on that was talking about it and I work in marketing and advertising. And a lot of what I do is like health is working in the healthcare field. Um, and there's like, I forget what the number was that they did a study and like, I don't remember if it was like in, it was, it was a third party. So it wasn't like someone who was a, it wasn't like an insurance company did it or whatever. It was a third party that was kind of looking at the cost of, of our healthcare in our, in this country and relative to like, what is the next big, like, 
recession going to like what is going to create the next big like loss of wealth in this country essentially is what it came down to is what they were looking at and overwhelmingly the number one thing that's going to create that is is our is an impending healthcare crisis because what what they were basically talking about and the doctor was really kind of talking about he was getting around to you know he was a big proponent of like eating you know raw organic free range you know even like i think he was like he followed a, a keto diet or whatever um and what they basically found was you know or it's not rocket science but what they've finally kind of started to admit to was that you know all chronic diseases for the most part i won't say all because i'm not a doctor but a large majority of chronic diseases are caused by inflammation right Mm -hmm. and where does inflammation come from inflammation comes from you know a lot of times sugars and grains and so forth was basically what he was saying so he was like when you cut those types of things out of your diet and you introduce healthy fats and clean proteins that don't have you know, aren't injected with antibiotics and all these things all of a sudden the inflammation in your body goes down because a lot of these chronic illnesses is your body reacting to severe inflammation or long-term inflammation that your body's just kind of learned to deal with over time um and so that was one of the things that he kind of talked about and it was really interesting because it was all kind of hinged on the idea of you know um you know healthy proteins or wild caught proteins being a great source of 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 clean protein to remove some of the bad stuff from your plate in a very, very quick way in the sense of hunting can allow you to do that. So it's not as though you have to buy only free range grass fed, you know, bison for $13 a pound at the grocery store. It's like, no, you can go out and hunt and you can harvest an elk, you can harvest a deer or whatever and get the same quality of meat, probably even better um, than you would get in the grocery store, even when you're buying those free range and grass fed, um, you know, grass fed, you know, proteins and stuff like that. So I thought it was just really interesting, uh, whenever he looked at it from that context. So like, if you read even further into it, the net net is that hunting can be a, so help be a solution to some of the healthcare epidemic that we're, that we're facing. It was kind of like the net net. So hundred uh, percent though. And, and actually what's surprising is we're seeing in, you know, hunting numbers are, are going down across the board for the most part over the last you know, 10, 15 years as, as the, you know, 1960s, 1970s hunters uh, like our our parents and grandparents are, are you know, growing older and, and passing away. And you don't really have a lot of people that are stepping in and taking that void. Well, I read a study recently where it was saying that, you know, the hipster culture mm-hmm. is the largest influx of of new hunters because these people all want to figure out how to source organic free-range meat and they don't want to pay the 13 dollars a pound that the bison is at whole foods or whatever and and they're going well i want to be a hunter gatherer i want to figure out how to do this myself and how do i do it and the article i read was all about you know how to to try and incorporate these guys into the hunting kind of good old boy circle, if you will, and, and, you know, talk to them and and teach people how to hunt because, you know, we need more hunters in the woods, especially here uh, where we have a, you know, huge overabundance of deer and not a lot of hunters. And, you know, these people want to get out and do it. So, I mean, why, why not teach anybody who wants to learn? A hundred percent, man. Like I couldn't agree with you more. I think, I think part of, and I've talked a little bit about this with a couple past guests, not this exact topic, but like 
asked the question of what I, you know, they had been in the outdoor industry a long time and they've been in doing this for 40, 50 years. And I was just curious what their take was on what they felt was like a good evolution and a bad evolution of hunting. Like, where are we and how are we doing and get their read on it since they've been, you know, in the game a long time. Um, and a lot of it is still like, you know, a lot of the challenges is, is the divisiveness. Like I can't, we can't hold our hunting and our hunting heritage. And I don't want this to sound come off sounding the wrong way because i think that there's part of it that you want to hold tightly that is you know historical and it's it's the heritage aspect of it but there's part of it too that like just like whenever you have kids you know and anyone who's a parent you know and i'm not sure if you've had if you and your wife have had your uh, the the bambino yet but you know once if not once you do like you'll quickly kind of realize this it's like you love them dearly it just like we might love hunting dearly right but there's at some point you can't any longer shape who they are and so in the hunting sense like there, there comes a point where you can no longer shape and dictate what it's going to be for the betterment of it you have to let it just ultimately become what it is intended to become so it's like if that means it bringing people in who maybe don't always share the same exact viewpoints that we do as a as a historical hunting culture right that's not necessarily a bad thing you know what i mean it's like having some change and some new ideas and some new ways of thinking about things is not is not the end is not the, the you know the end of hunting as we know it necessarily right no it's it might better be, it, yeah exactly it might be the way that we get to be able to continue it right because the alternative is is that we keep those people out we lose our numbers we lose our voice and then we lose our pastime and our heritage like right. those, and those are the two roads how i see it i totally agree and and when you have you know a difference of opinion and you're able to have a discussion across the board uh and, and hear both sides of it and come to a resolution, whatever you're, you're working on grows for the better. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, to have, you know, I, I sit on a couple different board of directors and, you know, one of them's a, a relatively hostile board. And, um, you know, at the end of the meetings, it's like, Hey, like this is, this is good. We were able to, to move forward and, um, and, you know, grow somewhere. But, you know, when you look at, for the first time in our country, we're, we're the furthest away or furthest removed from where our food comes from mm-hmm. than we have ever been. And that's where I think you see a lot of people having a problem with hunting is because they they just don't realize or don't think about the fact that when they walk through the grocery store, all that meat there came from somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, and and so if you know, I, I have some people that are adamantly opposed to hunting, and I ask them, "Well, do you eat meat?" Mm-hmm. I'm like, "Yeah, I eat meat." Well, if you eat meat and you are adamantly opposed to hunting, that really doesn't hold a lot of validity, in my opinion. Um, you, you know, for you to be telling me that I can't go source my own meat, you know, in, mm-hmm. in your opinion. Now, I understand if you're worried about the you know, how ethical it is or whatever. And I'm happy to have a dialogue with anybody who wants to, mm-hmm. um, in that manner. But, you know, I think for the most part, a lot of people in this country just don't realize where their food comes from. Yeah. No, I it's, agree. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Not, yeah. Well, it's not 1960 where like we all have you know a couple, <laughs> a couple chickens in the backyard and, and we know where they're going to end up in a couple of weeks, you know, I mean, right. Um, and not that everybody had that in 1960, but I mean, you know, as food's getting more processed, it, it is able to travel further. And as it travels further, you know, you have more and more metropolitan type areas where people don't venture out and, 
and don't think about where a lot of their meat comes from. So, yep. um, yeah, not, sorry, we got way off topic. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's a good topic and it's, I'm always glad to have this, this discussion. I think it's one that, you know, <clears throat> actually these types of discussions actually excite me more in a lot of ways than, than just, you know, the, you know, hunting conversations. And this is a hunting, hunting conversation, but I wanted to add to that because, you know, what you're saying is hundred percent true. Um, I had a buddy of mine last year and folks who listen to the podcast heard, heard the story, but you know, I had, he was a friend of mine who worked with me. He's from, you know, nor, uh, New York, like out, not from the city, you know, it was like the suburbs. I, I think he was around like the Rochester area is where he grew up. And then he lived in LA for like 10 years. He's a, he shot film and videography for like national geographic and stuff like that. And then moved back here and he's a designer. He and his wife um, live in just in the suburbs of Philadelphia. And I would always talk to him about hunting and stuff like that. And he was always interested because he likes adventure, you know, and he also likes the local form of it. Like he likes to eat local foods. He likes to drink local beers. Like he's all about like understanding the story of where things came from that he's eating. Right. He's just into that stuff. And so one day, finally, you know, he was talking about, you know, if I got a turkey, if I'd let him try some, because he's never had a wild turkey before. He's never eaten it. I I shared some elk with him. I shared some, you know, venison with him, some goose, you know, with him. And I I finally just said, I was like, hey, why don't don't you just get your, take the the exam, get your license. And I was like, I'll just take your turkey hunt and we'll try to get your own for you. And he was like, really? And I was like, yeah. And, And it was like, he was like, I never thought in a million years I'd be able to go hunt because I didn't have anybody show me how, you know? And so it was just that moment saying, Hey, why don't, why don't I take you to go do this? And it was like Dunzo, right? He was all in. So he went turkey hunting and I'm getting ready to take him on a goose hunt this, this winter yet, you know? And so he's super stoked to like, for the first time, try to like bag his own protein, you know what I mean? Which is super cool to watch someone get stoked about that. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, anytime I've run across anyone who is trying to, uh, learn how to hunt or wants to get out and hunt, I mean, you see that desire there but they don't know the next step to take i'm i'm more than happy to help anyone like that and i have a you know handful of guys that i'm working with right now that are you know in various stages of of learning how to hunt and teach them how to shoot bows and Mm -hmm. then get them real proficient and then make sure that i'm comfortable with with their proficiency and then you know teach them how to climb a tree and be safe in doing that and and taking them through you know all those processes up to how to how to shoot a deer because i never had that i never had anyone that you know taught me how to hunt and um i think in teaching yourself you know you learn i mean you have quickly because you're forced to but Mm -hmm. in the same regard you know you you have to have a super drive to want to do that not a lot of people do and especially here in the suburbs where it's not very welcoming to to learning how to hunt i mean if we were out in Montana with a ton of walk-in hunting areas, that's great. You know, you right. have more area to kind of play around on and and learn. And you know, our learning curve is a little steeper here in the burbs because, <laughs> right. you know, it's like it's, you miss it might be the neighbor's dog. You yeah, know I mean? or so. or I mean, you know, the the biggest nightmare in the suburbs is a long tracking job right. because what I'm hunting on is a half acre, quarter acre lot and. The difference between a deer running 40 yards and piling up and a deer running 400 yards and bedding that's gut shot mm-hmm. is, is the difference between like, you know, a major problem and just a normal <laughs> night. And, right. you know, when that deer runs 400 yards, God knows how many property lines it's crossing. And, and that, you know, let's say it runs across eight properties. Well, now that's eight doors I have to knock on 
eight different people that might be pissed off that now know I'm like operating in the area, eight backyards that could have a pool in the back that the deer piled up into. And my wife is going to be pissed if we have to pay to clean another pool out. Right. Um, I hear, I hear, I hear another. Yeah. Yeah. That was, (laughs) that was not a fun morning. Right. Um, But yeah, I mean, so when you have a lot of, you know, exposure to that, that's never good in a, in an urban setting. Uh, Right. So, you know, I always try to be out of sight, out of mind. Not that I'm doing anything illegal, but the, the less blatant I am that I'm flaunting around that I'm hunting in their backyard, the less chance of I, the less chance I have of running into an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, that's the the biggest concern for me is, you know, being efficient in my hunts uh, as far as you know, getting as many harvests as I can, and uh, then also. You know, making sure that when the opportunity does present itself that, you know, I'm as as quick and clean with the kill as possible because I just can't afford to have, uh, you know, take a pot shot or take a take a poor shot that results in uh, cleaning not the having. Yeah. Yeah. Having it run across into the school bus or something. So. Right. Right. Before we continue our conversation, let's talk about Wicked Tree Gear Saws. Hardcore deer hunters need hardcore tools. Do yourself a favor and check out Wicked Tree Gear, the toughest hand saws and pool saws on earth. You buy it once, you buy it for life, backed by a lifetime guarantee. Right now, if you use the promo code TRUTH, you'll save 20% on your next purchase with free ground shipping. So head over to wickedtreegear.com and get a saw that's tough enough to work as hard as you hunt. I want to I want to talk a little bit about, you know, how you cuz I heard you say, you know, like you kind of started hunting on your own. I want to talk about that, but before we do that, I wanted to kind of go back and kind of build on a, a point that you made on the on the last point that we were talking about where, you know, it was, you know, folks who, you know, don't um d- don't hunt, you know, and have a problem with people who do hunt who but yet they eat meat and so on and so forth. There's always that kind of dynamic when you run into some non-hunters and stuff like that. Just cuz I want to make mention of this because I recently had this exact same conversation. Um and I I don't want to say I found a way to have the to win the conversation cuz it's not about winning necessarily. It's just about enlightening, I guess is a better way to put it. Um you know, and this this person is a person that I work with and her family's French, they're all from France, so it's very, um, that's kind of like their approach. So, very left of center, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, has a problem with hunting just in general. Um, you know, doesn't eat much meat, but will occasionally and stuff like that. And so, we were kind of talking about it a little bit. And, you know, and she kind of asked me the question, well, why wouldn't you just, just buy it? Right. Um, and one of the things I had said, because she's also very much environmentally conscious as well. Right. I said, you know, I was like, and I just kind of stopped her there and I said, well, y- you know, I don't know if you recognize this or not. I was like, but you know, at the rate that we're going to grow all the plants and to continue to, you know, not grow, but you know, build, you know, larger numbers of domesticated cattle, sheep, whatever the case might be, it's like that ultimately takes land away, right? That ultimately hurts the, the you know, the ecology of a, of a habitat. Right. I was like, because you have to make more land for grazing, which ultimately pushes out, you know, animals that inhabited inhabited that place, you know, previously into tighter and tighter quarters, which you put animals in tighter and tighter quarters. They have less and less resources, which then creates starvation, disease, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, You know, and she didn't really ever think of that. And so then I also turned her on to I was like, there's a guy, you know, by the name of Shane Mahoney. 
anyone out there that's never heard of Shane Mahoney, I urge you to go just you watch him on YouTube and watch him talking talking or listen to him talking other podcasts because he's incredible. He's probably like the you know foremost leader of conservation in in the world pretty much you know world governments hire him to come in and help them figure out how to conserve their you know uh, their native species and so forth um but he has a wild harvest initiative program i think is what it's called where he's actually doing i forget how long the study is but he's doing a long study to kind of figure out what is the price of a pound of clean protein right like what is the world value to it? because he understands to get some world governments and more specifically he's talking about some third world governments that don't and can't value wildlife the same way just because their economy doesn't allow them to is mm-hmm. trying to figure out how to put a value on it. So world governments look at this as like an opportunity um, to create value and that it is a money opportunity for them. Right. So you can then say, and I'm just, I'm making this very elementary just for the purpose of this conversation, but that you can say, you know, when you harvest a deer, it creates 30 pounds of clean protein, which has a value of X at the market, which means we are able to remove if, 100 hunters hunt and they get 30 pounds a piece we can remove this many head of cattle from the landscape that need to be domesticated and use resources from our from our land that could be otherwise used by wildlife right so he's putting a value to it so he can kind of show that hunters are are actually helping like conservation which we all kind of know and under understand but then there's also like a monetary value associated with that as well so he can then go back to these world governments and give them and share these studies with them as to how hunting is actually not just benefic- beneficial from a conservation perspective, but it also has a, a financial impact on their on their on their governments as well. Well, that's really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So it's 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 amazing. And so when I shared that with her, she was like, "Are you serious?" And I said, "Yeah." I was like, "The part of the problem is is that people don't look at wildlife as having value beyond like, oh, look, I saw that bird." You know what I mean? I was like, in and like, if that value is gone in that moment, in that instant, is the only value that it has for that person, um, then it it becomes a lot easier to dismiss it, right? But if it has a longer term value as a population and as a sus- sustainable food source, as a natural, you know, renewable resource, which is what it is, and get people to think of it more in those terms, all of a sudden it starts to take on a little bit of a different shape and a little bit of a different life that has a little bit more importance. So it was in that instance, I won't say she's going to go out and buy a bow tomorrow. (laughs) You know what I mean? But it was one of those things where she was like, okay, she's like, I got it. I get you. I hear you. She's like, so I understand how you hunt and and I'm okay with it. And sometimes that's the only part of the battle that you need to win that in that moment. Like she was okay with me hunting and how I approach it. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. You know. Yeah. Well, and I think a lot of people just have a, a real common misconception of what a hunter is in general, or at, at least the people that I interact with. I mean, I can't tell you how many times, uh, and, and we kind of like joked about this in the film, but like, I, I really can't tell you how many times I've had a homeowner that, you know, reached out to me, got to know me. And maybe after four months or six months or whatever period of time where they're now comfortable with me, they'll just say to some regard, you know, you're not what I expected. Yep. And I'm like, what do you mean by that? Mm -hmm. 
you know, and, and then they get all squirmy because they're trying to dance around the fact that they want to say you're not some redneck wearing, you know, camo overalls that's just out here drinking Budweiser and shooting at everything. Yep. And and that's what like a lot of people have the idea in their mind is what a hunter is. Yep. And um I don't really know where that comes from or how that you know comes about, but you know, they don't expect somebody to be, you know, an intelligent intellectual guy that they're able to have a conversation with yeah. uh, on, on many different levels. And there's some people that are opposed to hunting that I have permission to hunt on their properties. And it's because they understand the deer are overpopulated here. There, there are very few people that have lived here for longer than six months that will tell you that we don't have a major deer problem because right. it, it's just, it, you can't ignore it. It's unavoidable. Um, you know, you cannot drive around and not see deer at night. You cannot talk to people. I mean, I would be willing to bet that not a single property that you could go up and knock on the door of either haven't directly, somebody in that household either directly has had Lyme's disease or one person removed from them that they know very closely has, has Lyme's disease. Mm-hmm. Wow. And I mean, every single person that I've talked to has had interactions like that. And it's because of the overpopulation, but, um, you know, it, still they realize that it's a resource that needs to be thinned back because of the damage that, that they're doing here. They've literally eaten themselves out of house and home. They're just mm-hmm. walking around starving. Yeah. So, yeah, I like to blame Elmer Fudd on our stereotype. <laughs> like, <laughs> cause all he ever wanted to do was kill the wabbit. You know what I mean? So it was, uh, I'm, I'm going to blame him, but I'm going to do a hard transition here and get back to some, some white tail stuff. Cause I know you mentioned earlier that, you know, you didn't have anybody to teach you how to hunt. So I'm curious, like, how did you get start hunting, you know, and was the urban hunting kind of born out of necessity or was that, you know, where you were like, where you just kind of, you know, cut your teeth hunting. I'm just kind of curious how you got started. No. So I, um, I always loved being outdoors growing up, but I was born and raised in Northern Virginia. So outdoors for me was, I mean, my, my backyard, um, was about a block away from this stream bed Creek system that eventually got to the Potomac river. So my brothers and I grew up spending a lot of time in those woods, you know, playing paintball and just running around and, you know, doing crazy boys stuff when we were younger. But, um, I had never thought about hunting ever. And then, um, my grandfather, when I was like 12 or 13, taught me how to shoot a longbow. My, my grandfather was one of the, you know, first guys to start hunting with a bow and arrow. And I never put two and two together um, until I went to college and my grandfather, unfortunately, uh, was never able to take me hunting, but he was a, a big deer hunter, you know, back when he was younger, but he was also uh, a smoker like so many people from 1950s, 1960s, uh, you know, world war two era right. were. And so by the time I was in college, I realized I wanted to hunt and he was nowhere near shape to be able to not be at his house so um i talked to him a lot about hunting but never the specifics of it more of just him telling me stories about the good old days when they were hunting in the the george washington national forest and uh you know shooting deer one of his buddies had a cabin 
just on the outskirts of the George Washington National Forest. So I um I just had a drive to learn how to hunt. And so I looked up it was my sophomore year of college. I looked up the closest um hunter education course that I could find. And there was one like two days away. It was Wednesday, Thursday, Friday afternoons. So it was from like three o'clock to six o'clock or whatever the hours were. And I was skipping class to drive <laughs> the two hours each way to take this hunter education course so I could get my license. And then I just went out and, and hunted public land nice. uh, near my school for the longest time. And so over that time period, I fell in love with, with deer hunting. And, uh, I think it was kind of the combination of the chess match and, and, and wanting to learn more and learn more. And it was kind of, you know, I'm a sponge. I, I always want to keep learning things. And, um, on top of that, I, I think that it meshed well with my love for being outdoors. So, right. I was going out hunting public land that was heavily pressured public land uh, right on the Virginia-West Virginia border, and I was terrible at hunting. And I would like occasionally stumble into things and deer, but I, it took me forever to, to kill one. And so um, I read every bit of deer hunting literature that you could find, books, magazines. I watched all the TV shows. I mean, I think my roommates thought I was crazy by some point. <laughs> um, and one of my roommates was a was a hunter. He grew up hunting with his uh, dad and brother, and they were members at this really nice hunt club that was a couple hours from uh, where we went to college. But they didn't allow guests, so he would go down there and text me all the all the cool stuff he was seeing or nice. you know, whatever. So yeah, um, but I I just had this this drive from you know in inside to learn how to hunt and uh i just continued to read books and read books and then finally i started reading about how deer use topography and um you know learning how they use topo and the wind to their advantage and and that's when i really started actually seeing some deer and so i hike way back into public land and find these spots and um i'll never forget the first time i shot a deer I had no clue how to field dress one. And I had photocopied out of a magazine this step-by-step guide to, to field dress a deer. And it's really funny for me now, looking back on that moment. Dude, this is like my favorite part of the whole conversation is right here. <laughs> like, I uh, love this. So, so I had this Ziploc bag that was like crammed down in my in my pack of this wadded up, you know, like folded up. And it had been in there for like. Hell, it might have been there for like a year, year and a half. I mean, it was right. forever before I killed a deer. And so it's covered like peanut butter and jelly remains <laughs> and chips and stuff. And so um, I got this doe laying there and I laid out with rocks the the step-by-step guide. And I followed along step-by-step. And I was – every incision I made, I was terrified that I was screwing something up. I mean <laughs> – like petrified right and it took me it probably took me an hour and a half maybe two hours to field dress that deer i mean (laughs) i just i didn't have a freaking clue right and uh yeah i'm not that old but this was before youtube so it wasn't like i could watch a video and and, or like pull it up on my on my blackberry at the time i mean i'm just like literally in the middle of the woods and so 
I just I finally got this thing gutted, and you know I look back on that now. I mean, dude, I could feel just a deer in my sleep. Right. Know? Like I I've done, God, thousands of of them, and uh, but it all started there with with that, and I mean I think that ultimately is why I'm so willing to help anyone because mm-hmm. I cut the shit out of my teeth right. learning how to hunt deer and and you know I, anytime that I could help save somebody from having to have a photocopied <laughs> how to guide a field dressing yeah. deer yeah. I would highly recommend it and this, well, the funny thing was now that I now that we're telling this story I'm pretty sure it was a book that I found in our library in college mm-hmm. that I photocopied it from because I'm pretty sure I had to go put money on my student ID card to use the copying machine. Right. But the reason I remember it was the book was from like 1975. And so it had these really weird field dressing practices, Mm -hmm. for example, like ball and twine to tie the, uh, the anal cavity off or something, you know, it's like, you don't need that. Just rip rip it out. out. Yeah. But uh, so I'm there, like tying like a, a pretty little bow around this, <laughs> the colon, you know, before I cut it out. I mean, I literally followed it step by step. It was it was worse than building anything from IKEA. It right, was, uh, that's amazing. Yeah, but so, um, but yeah, I mean, to answer your question, man, I just always had a drive to to hunt, and then so I graduated from college, and I didn't. I, I moved back here to Northern Virginia, and uh, for me leaving Northern Virginia wasn't really an option. So I, I work for my family business. I mean, obviously everybody has an option to go wherever they want, but right. I wanted to come here and, and work with the family. So, um, what I would do is I would work all day, Monday through Friday. Uh, we, we were really strict with the time off allowed and mm-hmm. especially as a new employee and, you know, right. daddy's daddy is the owner. You're not going to not going to get a bunch of time off. Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. For sure. So, um, I, I think I got my butt worked harder than anybody yeah, else. That, that's usually how it works. <laughs> yeah. But, um, so we had a, a military installation that, uh, is not too far from my, well, it's probably about, it was about 30 minutes from where I was living at the time. And they allowed hunting. If you went through the whole, you know, a bunch of processes, background check, qual- proficiency test, uh, qualifications, stuff. Right. So I had permission to hunt there. So I would go down there on Saturday morning at like four o'clock in the morning and I would pick my spot and I would go into that area and I would sit there all day long. I would not leave the tree. And that was my Saturday hunt. And in Virginia at the time, Sunday hunting was illegal. So that was my only day to hunt. And if it rained or shined, it did not matter. I was spending all day in, in that tree. And that's really where the kind of urban hunting came about because I would drive down to this place and I hike a couple miles back into the training area. I'd sit there all day. I'd like maybe see a couple deer, maybe I wouldn't. And I drive home and every time I'm driving through the urban areas, I see a bunch of deer. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, after a, about a year of, of hunting like like that, of driving past deer to see no deer, I, I just kept thinking, like, there's got to be a better way to go about this. There's got to be a better way for me to hunt these deer that I'm seeing in Mrs. Smith's backyard every afternoon. Right. Um rather than the military base that really doesn't need that many deer hunted because there are so many people there that are, that are hunting them already. Right. 
so, you know, I ended up meeting a, a guy who is now a great friend of mine um, who who was hunting the suburbs, and he kind of showed me the ropes, and it was like all of the – everything came into line, and it was perfect. I mean – I'm able to, I was able to drive a couple minutes. I had all this property at my disposal, um, you know, after some time. I mean, at first it was one property. It was like, it was my grandmother's bridge friend. Hmm. And then, uh, yeah. And I just, you know, hunted at her place. And then she told a couple of her buddies about me. And then she told a couple of friends and it just kind of snowballed from there into a plethora of properties. But, um, you know, it really felt right to be in an area where there are a lot of deer, you're seeing plenty of deer and you're helping people out by, by thinning them out. So, um, nice. it, it really, yeah, it really worked out well. So that was kind of the super long winded version. of No, I love it, man. Like, like I was saying, like, I liked the, I liked the, uh, I was in, I was getting a visualization of you with all your, all your pieces of paper out while you were gutting that oh, deer. Brutal, man. I it's like, like a shitty old Walmart field line pack that was the zipper was all busted on, and um, I had this the, the Ziploc bag that had that. I can vividly remember that because I kept my knife in there with, and I didn't know this at the time, but I bought those field dressing gloves, which are basically like cattle prod gloves, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so the, it was all in that little kill kit, and uh, when I pulled it out, I laid it all out perfectly. I mean, it looked like Dexter in the woods there with right. all the. All the paper, <laughs> the rocks, and uh, it's just you know it's so funny thinking about that now because uh, well, because well, I mean you don't even think about stuff like that right I mean after you've been hunting for a while but like for me it's like I grew up in the country you know what I mean just you know I had there were more wildlife or, or there was more you know cattle and farm animals around than there were people you know where I lived and you know grew up hunting from the time I could since I can basically remember, I was always kind of in the woods with my dad or whatever. And then eventually started hunting, you know, once I you know, became old enough to legally hunt and so forth. And, you know, I remember my dad gutting my first deer to show me how, but I had seen him gut others, you know what I mean? And that was basically like the tutorial that I got. And then from there it was like, I was, you know, was on my own. And it's like, and it's one of those things that like, I just never even thought of like, you know, how would someone figure this out? Because I'm just like, I oh, just, just got the deer. You right. know what I mean? Just do it. Yeah. yeah. And I, it didn't, it didn't ever dawn on me until I guess two years ago. Right. I was out in Ohio hunting a piece of public land and I killed a nice deer and I had never caped one out, you know, to, to take to a taxidermist. Like, cause I had never had like a full mount done before, you know what I mean? So like, and that was when it dawned on me. Cause I was like, man, I was like, I've never done this before. Like I've never had to figure out how to cape it out without ruining the hide to take to a taxidermist. So it's like, I literally had to get on YouTube and like watch a video as like to where I need to make all the incisions to get like to get all the meat out so I could then take the head off to take it to the taxidermist. You know what I mean? Yeah. But you know, I you know, fortunately, you know, I didn't have printouts necessarily required for the, for the, for this one, but you know, it was that was the moment that it dawned on me. I was like, man, there are some people that just like the process of gutting one and getting it out of the woods is like foreign to them. You know what I mean? And that's and that just is a good point of like Man, when someone needs your help that wants to learn how to hunt, like give them a hand, man, because this stuff isn't second nature. Yeah, well, you know, it's really funny. So I took that deer. I I was so proud of that deer. Yeah, and, uh, uh, hell yeah. So one of the things in that book, 
uh, the, that I photocopied, it's said to remove the rear tarsal glands because it will ruin the meat. <laughs> so I'm like, well, shit, I got to get those off right now. <laughs> like right you know? away. Yeah. Right. And so, but when I photocopied it with the black and white, it was really hard to tell what the tarsal gland was. <laughs> and so I didn't know what the hell I'm doing. So I'm like, okay, rear tarsal gland. So I'm looking on the back and I can kind of see the spot that they're looking at on the, the black and white photo. So I just went in there and cut the entire rear tarsal gland off with the Achilles tendon. Okay. So I, I drag, yeah, like I don't have a freaking clue what I'm doing, but I'm like, yeah. So I drag this deer to the butcher and I'm, I'm like Mr. City boy with his deer pulling up to the, the country butcher. And, um, cause where I went to school was in the middle of nowhere. And so okay. I pull up and thank God the, the dude who, I unloaded the deer or two at, at the butcher shop it was really cool. And he was like kind of looking at me He goes, you kill a lot of these, you know, you do a lot of hunt. And I was like, Oh man, this is my first deer. Like I'm super excited. I don't, I don't know like what to get for the meat stuff. And, uh, he's like, let me show you something. <laughs> and he, he pulled the up. He's like, he's like, you see where this was? He's like, shows a, a you know, another deer carcass thing there. He's like, see how we hang them. He's like, when you do that, we can't, you can't hang them up on our on our thing here, you know. And I was like, "Oh my god!" And I mean, thankfully, he was so cool about it because if he had uh, shamed me, I don't know what I would have done. <laughs> right? Yeah, that that dude is a saint, kind of, yeah. right? Because if yeah. if because uh, that conversation and outcome could have gone, you know, a completely different way, which would have made it, you know. I won't say tough for you to go back and hunt again, but it's like, it really kind of like you're on this high of like, I got my first deer. This is awesome. I recognize, I don't really know exactly what I'm doing, but man, I am pumped. And all you like, you know, it would be terrible if someone came in along and like just pissed on your parade because you didn't know how to like gut it the first time. You know yeah, what I mean? It's like, it could have sure. been really damaging where it's like, man, I don't want to do that again. You know what I mean? Where, um, you know, as opposed to just saying, Hey man, I mean, that was really cool of him to just say, Hey, this is, this is how you want to do this. You yeah. Know? So and, that way, you know, know you see some people doing that nowadays kind of gets back to what we were talking about earlier with like hunter recruitment or people coming into hunting is, you know, it's, it's not up to you what somebody else shoots. Yeah. Right. So if you're at a hunt club or a managed property or whatever, and there's some kid there and he's tickled to death with the little hundred inch basket rack, one and a half year old eight pointer that would have been a monster in four years. Like, Dude, that kid's happy. Let him be happy. Yep. Let know? him like, let him do it. Right. Let people shoot what they what they're comfortable with and what they want to harvest because that's what it's all about at the end of the day. Not and I've you know I have some buddies who've told me horror stories from their hunt clubs or like yeah this guy like yelled at the twelve year old kid and right made him cry while they're standing around the meat <laughs> pole. I'm like why man you know yeah, like, oh man it's it's funny that we're talking about this because i literally just literally just had this conversation with my my father-in-law they were in town for the holidays and stuff and um, i don't hunt up much anymore we have a family farm in uh like south central pennsylvania um probably not too awful far actually it's probably about two hours from you it's up around bedford pennsylvania um, sounds good man i'd love to come up thanks yeah dude for sure <laughs> like not a problem actually we can probably we could probably make that happen but uh the uh it's uh we've done some property management on it and stuff. We've put some food plots in and stuff like that over the past couple of years. He's it's been in his family for good lord, I don't know. He that's the only property he's ever hunted growing up. Like and he's in his sixties, so it's been in his family like sixty some years. He's been hunting it probably forty some. That's and, cool. And uh 
we have a cabin on it and stuff like that. There's no, there's no structure on it other than the cabin that he built. It's basically just like we go down there and hunt. And I haven't really hunted it very much like the past. I don't think I hunted it at all this year. I hunted it once or twice, I think last year, but we did some food plot, you know, updates to it and did some timber cuts and stuff like that. And trying to get, you know, the deer herd into like a good place. Cause it's in a part of Pennsylvania where there's a lot of hunting pressure, a lot of gun hunting and stuff like that, where you're, you're going to be hard pressed to, to grow decent deer or I shouldn't say grow allow deer to age to a point where you're going to have you know like that property put it this way if you get a pope and young deer on that property that's a good deer like that's yeah. that's a deer that you probably shouldn't pass you know what I mean um because I've only ever really seen one or two I've only ever seen one four and a half year old on the property all the years I've hunted it um but anyway we were talking about this you know the whole what you shoot what you don't shoot and how people feel about it the other night because you know he it's like he's killed a lot of deer and he's, you know, older fella. And he, he grew up in that era where you just, if something runs by you, it's, you shoot it, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like doesn't, you know, and that's, and that's fine. Um, I don't hunt that way. And so whenever I started hunting there, it's like, I would pass deer. And especially since we were doing some updates to the property, it's like, I'd pass deer and try to let deer get some age on it and stuff like that. And, you know, which he wasn't real, really for at first. And then it finally dawned on him, I guess last year where, um, no, there was, uh, there was one really nice buck and I had, I had an encounter with him the year before. And I'll make this brief because people have heard this story. I watched him for two years. I had a couple encounters with him as a three and a half year old. Um, just couldn't quite get a shot opportunity. And I knew the deer, like the back of my hand in the opening day of last year. Um, I had him at 30 yards cause I knew exactly where he was going to be. And he was there. It just, he came in with a couple other deer and one deer got spooky and they just, they didn't blow out of there. They just turned around and walked the opposite way. And then my buddy ended up shooting him during gun season. And, uh, and that was the only four and a half year old deer I'd ever seen, but there was, there was probably three other really nice or four other really nice up and comer deer on that property that all got shot during gun season. And which was great. All the guys, you know, killed during rifle season and stuff like that. And, um, and we were kind of talking about it a little bit and, and he was talking and like projecting to the next year. And I said, you know, you just need to be careful, you know, whenever you're like, when you're, when you're during deer season or during buck seasons or rifle season specifically, you know, if you don't have kind of, if you want to have certain caliber of deer, you need to kind of put parameters in place for everyone to, to hunt with. I was like, because all your up and comers are gone now, you know what I mean? I was like, cause you know, and that's, and that's okay. I was like, but you just need to understand that that means there's probably going to be a year, maybe a two year drought where you're not going to have probably what you're looking for. Right. And he under, and he got it and it was, he was like, yeah, he's like, you're right. You know, we should probably talk about that. And I was like, yeah. And so he talked to the guys about it or whatever. And this year, fast forward, he passed a, a shooter eight, you know, that was probably a borderline shooter, but you know, he's killed bigger deer. And so he let it walk. And so did two of the other guys. And one of the guys there got mad because they passed him because he didn't see any deer deer during the, during the hunt. He's like, well, I wouldn't, well, I wouldn't have passed that. And what I had told him was, is I was like, look, I was like, you know, just as you know, I should never tell her and nobody should ever tell someone what they should shoot. Right. And shouldn't shame them if they shoot something smaller than what you would shoot. Cause that's just, it's not right. And it's not your hunt. So don't worry about it. I was like, but the inverse is also true. I was like, is just because they would be happy to shoot something doesn't mean that I shouldn't change what my goals are because it might offend them. You yeah. know, I was like, because you know, that, that also is not, is not cool. I was like, everyone should have the opportunity to hunt what they want to hunt. And if, you know, he's the property owner. I was like, if you want it hunted a certain way and they don't want, you know, and someone doesn't want to hunt it the same way you want to hunt it, you know, I was like, then they don't have to hunt there. You know what I mean? I was like, and it's not a personal thing. It's just, you have a, a standard and if they don't like it, they don't, you know, they can, 
hunt the adjacent property, whatever the case is, right? I was like, but this whole idea that we have to, that people try to bestow on to other people what their criteria or what their goals should be is just kind of asinine in my opinion, you know? Yeah. Your goals are your goals. They're not my goals. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, like, you know, and, and, you know, everybody with a tag in their pocket is, is, has the right to take a legal deer, whether that, whatever Mm -hmm. that is in that area. And so, Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, for somebody to get mad at, at the new hunter who might be 12 or might be, 25 or 35 for shooting a you know a little fork porn fork horn that walked by i mean i understand the management practices i have a couple properties uh that are not in an urban setting that i hunt where i'm really strict on what we shoot and i've passed a lot of deer that people think you know i'm crazy about for passing and Mm -hmm. and it's because if I put an arrow in that deer, it can't get any bigger. That's guaranteed. Right. You know, that's hundred percent, man. And, and if I don't put an arrow in that deer, then we're going to see what happens next year. Or maybe somebody else will shoot them. And if, if they do good for them, it'll make them really happy. And, you know, they'll put them on his, on their wall forever. And, and that's cool. But, you know, I, I know for certain what will not happen if I shoot that deer. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, now, that being said, in the suburbs, I mean, I have a completely different kind of mission, and that is to reduce the deer as much as possible. And that's just because the first step to getting that deer herd where it needs to be for for health perspectives, uh, for the, for the herd health, not human health, but right. it is is reduced drastically. And by the numbers that we're currently at, I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to do the math. That's like, hey we need to start whacking and stacking big time. Right. Right. And so that's, so I want to touch on that a little bit, just like the, the, uh, I guess the quality or, or I guess more specifically the, the urban hunting. Cause I know we've been kind of dancing around it a little bit, but I'm just curious, man, like, you know, what is the, like, I guess what is the, no other way to say it. What is the quality of deer that you're, that you're looking at? I mean, do you have some places in those urban settings where you have, you know, like decent bucks? Is there like a honey hole somewhere where you have that you're like, man, I know I'm whacking and stacking, but every year there seems to be a hammer that lives in this area. Yeah. I mean, we, we have the handful of like 160s, 170s running around. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm just messing. <laughs> no, so, I mean, it's weird because what we don't have is we don't have the, the browse that the deer need to Got get it. nutrients to get up there. Right. However, you know, I have a lot of cameras. I, I, you know, I have a lot of properties I hunt. I run a lot of trail cameras. I probably am running anywhere. Probably, I probably have like 50 trail cameras out right now. Give or take a few. Um, so that means I probably have 65, but 15 are in various <laughs> right. stages of disrepair at, at any, at any given time. Yeah, but I'm 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 really anal about checking cameras because I try to be as efficient as possible. So um, I'm always trying to figure out where the deer are, and and with the urban deer, the deer tend to be kind of nomadic, and mm-hmm. we'll get off on that tangent later. But um, you know, as far as the quality of deer, we have a lot of older deer mm-hmm. because nothing kills them other than cars or old age. Right. Um. So very regularly or not well i take that back every season you'll have pictures of a couple just absolute hammers and Hmm. in this area a hammer would be like a you know mid to upper 150 low 160 to class deer 
Right. Um, but I mean, we have, or in this area, I, I have plenty of trail camera pictures of deer that you would pay really good money to go shoot somewhere in the Midwest. Right. Um, the problem is I don't have 600, 700, 800 acres to pattern that deer's entire home range on right. or or the majority of his range. I can't tell you all the different beds he's bedding in. I can't tell you all his different food sources. I mean, you know, you have to almost wipe the slate clean when you're hunting in the suburbs because the food source might be something that you never thought of. Yep. For example, you know, it, it might be the hydrangea plant next door at, at Mrs. Peterson's house that she's put a bunch of fertilizer on that's neon green that the deer really like the taste of, as opposed to, you know, whatever other ornamental bushes uh, you're hunting over the back of. So, right. you know, we have high, high quality deer here, um, but they're very hard to shoot outside of the rut just because of that's how hard they are to pattern. Now, when we have years with a low Oak, mast um i just have enough properties where inevitably i'll have one or two properties where i have a white oak or two that are dropping i tend to see really good bucks Hmm. that time of year because they will move to get on those oaks um outside of that i'm pretty much hunting those year round because even when it's that magical late october early november time frame you want to be where the does are to find the bucks. So, right. um, but yeah, I mean, I have plenty of deer on my wall here that are killed in the suburbs that I think anybody would be proud of to shoot anywhere. You know, plenty, plenty of, you know, 130, mm-hmm. low 140 type deer. So yeah. I, I would say that if you put in the time, you know, you could kill a, a 135 to 140 inch deer every year in the, here in the burbs. Right. So, yeah. I was just curious, man, because like this this year was the first year that I've done some suburbia type hunting. So I live north of Philadelphia, uh, Bucks County area. So it's like once you get out further into Bucks County, you do get into like some farm esque kind of country. So it's not um, house on top of house. It's more like um, you know, like like small developments here and there with like mm-hmm. you know a farm in between type of thing. Um, um, so it's it's suburbs in comparison to where I grew up, but it's probably not the type of suburbs you're necessarily talking about. Like, you know, there'll be like a person might have a half acre and then the next na- door neighbor might have five, you know, and then the other neighbor might have 10, you know what I mean? So it's a little bit bigger lots, but I ended up getting similar type of thing. There's a program um, that I got that I joined that was all about thinning the deer herd because, again, they're eating people's bushes there's a lot more deer than the the land in the area has the ability to carry you know they walk into like some of these areas that are forested it's like the understory is pretty much like wiped clean so on and so forth and there was a swamp that i ended up getting access on and i hung a camera in there it's small parcel well small in comparison for a piece of public land i think it's like 25 acres um and uh i did my first camera pool like right before the season started this year it comes in um, like mid-september here in the eastern part of pa and had a legit 150 and I was like, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> I was like a, a legit mainframe, like perfectly symmetrical 10 point. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. And then kind of kept flipping through. Um, and there was like, there's a mid one thirty. There's another one thirty. I had le- legitimately five shooters on this one camera. 
like in this small little piece of swamp in this, you know, in this neighborhood. Um, so I was real stoked. Now the funny thing was, was like they were around, I kept missing them. I actually saw one of them from, from, uh, from the tree. Um, I saw one on the hoof. Uh, he heard me getting into the tree. It was really weird too. Cause it was, it might've been the beginning of October. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he heard me getting into the, actually it might've been right before October. It might've been just the end of September. And he heard me kind of scraping the tree as I was getting into it. And I think he thought it was a deer and they're, you know, messing with the tree or whatever. And he was, he just got curious and started walking down toward me and like stopped and was looking around. He couldn't see me cause I heard him. I stopped and he just kind of looked around and didn't see anything. So he just turned around and went the opposite way. But I was like, man, I could get into some uh, suburbia hunting. I was like, it's, it's pretty awesome. It's just super, <laughs> it's super cool, man. Like it's, um, I mean, I'm similar to you. It's like, you know, work a normal job, you know, live outside the city. I work in the city every day, you know, so I commute in every day and Pennsylvania has Saturday only hunting, you know what I mean? On, on the weekends, there's no Sunday hunting. Um, and all my family property is like three to three and a half hours away from me, the couple of different properties that we have back home. And so I can't necessarily get in and run back to hunt for like a day, especially if the weather's not going to be good or whatever. It's like, so I just started hunting around here and the suburb hunting man has been has been great, man. It's like, I, I look forward to doing, to doing more of it. So that was why I was just curious if you're seeing, you know, decent deer, but what you said about being able to pattern them is the pain because I literally at one point in the season, like completely lost them. Like they've just vanished and I've not seen them probably since man, I think like October 27th was like the last like inventory I had. And then one shooter showed up, like I want to say it was like November 27th or something like that. But other than that, it's been a ghost town in there. So yeah, it's, it's funny. I mean, the, the urban hunting is great. Um, it's funny because it's a completely different style of hunting than deep mm-hmm. woods hunting, yep. but it's the same in some regard, you know, I mean, you're climbing a tree. There are a lot of aspects, uh, as far as like playing the wind and all that, but it's so cool to watch how these deer have adapted to living with humans and, and living with the human presence and, you know, I have a lot of properties that are that are very small, maybe you know, half acre chunk of woods. Where uh, one in, in particular that comes to mind, there's a playground in the backyard of the neighbors, and so the kids will be out there playing really loud, and I'll watch deer be 50 yards from these kids in their playground and their swing set or whatever, and they're just watching the kids, and they the kids have no idea the deer are there, and then when the kids go inside, the deer get up and start moving around. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and they just know that they know the routines of everything that, that's around them. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I get that question a lot. They're like, oh, man, don't you get tired of like killing these easy fish in a barrel type canned hunts? I'm like, dude, dude yeah. hunt, hunting a deer in the suburbs is just as hard, if not harder than hunting a deer in the regular big woods. Like yeah. it's not I'm not sitting here just shooting the first five deer that walk by and then going home. Yeah. You know, it, it's they're they know the second that you cross that bubble outside of normal daily life and, and they will, you know, avoid that area. The other thing that I find really interesting is I I think that, you know, I've come to realize that because the browse is so, so just over browsed and and just unavailable for the most part, Mm -hmm. the deer tend to work on this nomadic, circuit or this like big circle where they'll kind of roam through the neighborhood looking for food and you know i'll get them on camera 
three, four days in a row, then they'll be gone for maybe five, and then they'll be back. Mm -hmm. But it's not like a normal uh, farm where you would have, you know, this is the bedding area, this is the feeding area. On a south wind, we're going to hunt here, and you will see 35 does. Or, you know, I mean, you really have to time it right, which is why I'm so anal about the cameras, is I want to get in front of that cycle, not behind it. So, right. you know, if I pull a card and I see that the deer had been gone for four days and then they were in there yesterday, I'm hunting that tomorrow because um, they'll probably be there. Or, if I see they haven't been there for four or five days, but previously it was a four or five day lull between when they were there and when they weren't, I'll go hunt that spot two days in a row or, you know, and then once I hunt a spot, I'll hunt it maybe two, three times in a row and then roll out and I'll let it rest for a while because, you know, pressure is what is pushing these deer around and, and the deer are getting pressured all day, every day, whether it be, you know, the UPS driver coming down the street or, the kids running through the the floodplain or you know whatever it is or the neighbor's dog chasing them um yeah they're trying to avoid that pressure and i don't want you know, that's what that pressure has pushed them into that property that i'm hunting them on and what i'm trying to do is thin them out not just push them off that property to another spot to where i can't thin them out right so you know it's important to to try and play it smart and hunt intelligently and you know, urban deer are no different than any other deer. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's just, you have a different set of circumstances that make it challenging, right? It's like in the, like if you're in a bigger woods setting, it's like, yes, you have more space, right. That, that they could hide in potentially. Right. But you also have the opportunity to hunt them more. I won't say more aggressively, but you can hunt them in more places. Right. So it's, there's a, there's a downside, but there's, you know, there's, there's also a benefit. They'll probably likely, at least my experience is like I can kind of figure out what you know what they're doing in terms of a pattern because their food source is consistent, their bedding is consistent because you know what the pressure is going to be in those places, right? Like especially if you own it or whatever, and you keep pressure off of it, you can kind of get a sense of this is the destination food, this is their primary bedding, early season, this is going to be their pattern, right? Here are the doe family groups where they bed during rut. You know, here are the funnels that kind of connect the two, you know, connect all those things. You can kind of play all those, you know, typical scenarios to your advantage it's like what i've found which is challenging is that all the things you had mentioned right so the food sources are constantly changing so it's not like the food source changes like with the season necessarily how you would suspect or how you would kind of hunt hunt it for you know from early season to you know to pre-rut whenever you know acorns are dropping to late season wherever you're not hunting that type of transition because the food sources are abundant in some cases or not and then wildly diverse and there's not really a rhyme or a reason as to why they're going to the place that they're going to eat maybe other than because that spot is the spot that's not pressured or they're not getting run off by the neighbor's dog like you'd mentioned the other thing that i ran into was like literally some dude walking his dog down through the wood or down through this little piece of timber like 30 yards from my stand you know what i mean like and it's just it's not like he's out hiking he's just taking his dog to go take a leak on a saturday afternoon oh yeah you know what i mean I've seen plenty of stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, and I just sit there and watch. It's like, I don't get mad about it. Cause I'm like, you know, dude has every right to be here too. It's behind his house. You know, he's got no right. clue I'm here, you know? And, you know, and it's just like, and that's the other thing. It's like you, the pressure is not just hunting pressure. It's like you mentioned, it's everything. It's everything pressure. You know, it's like, they're constantly surrounded by people. I do think though, what I, what I did notice, I'd be curious to get your opinion on this too. Cause you've been doing the urban thing, you know, a lot longer than I have. Um, 
I do think that at some point or at some points it makes the deer a little more curious living in that environment. I think that they're just a slight bit more curious because they've had encounters that weren't completely negative. Yeah. You know no, what totally. I mean? I mean, look, in the big woods environment, most of the time that deer have encountered humans, it's a negative encounter. Right. Whether that be just I mean, just by the sheer fact that they don't encounter humans that mm-hmm. often. Yep. But here, I mean, like I where I live, I have um a chunk of woods behind my house and you know, that I hunt in and I've seen deer bedded back there that'll watch me come out on my back deck with my dog and uh, they'll just, they'll stay bedded and they'll turn around and they'll watch my dog and they'll watch where he goes. And if he just goes to the edge of our yard and pees, they don't care. If he runs to his first poop spot, that's like five yards into the woods, they don't care. But the second that he catches a little whiff of them and breaks that line, you know, they're yeah. off. Yep. Right, but they they know the routines, and and I think they are curious. What's really kind of creepy to me is um, those same deer that kind of live in my backyard, um, they tend to come out into my yard when I'm grilling venison. (laughs) He's like, hey, you're cooking up bomb today. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Sue, is that you? Yeah, I mean, I, I I don't know what's up with that. Uh, I don't know if it's like a familiar aroma to that. I mean, clearly it is, but it, it's just meat, you know, and it's not like it's given off any specific. Uh, Did you throw that tarsal gland on there by accident? Yeah. yeah. You... You're not supposed to eat that? <laughs> the guy at the butcher shop told me it was great. He said it was great as a garnish. Like, yeah. Right on, like we have a guest there. You always give them the, you always yeah, give them the, the tarsal gland. gland. Yeah. I wonder why nobody came back for a second dinner date with my wife. <laughs> right. So I want to, I want to ask you, man, the, uh, as we were talking about, you know, they, they, we encounter a lot of the same things when you, when we hunt the urban areas and, and suburbia and there's different challenges that, you know, present themselves as we, as we had talked about. I'm curious if you see them react similarly to weather events as we would in larger woods or like a farm setting. So like, you know, do you see similar things or deer do similar things or movement wise, you know, whether whenever you you have a high pressure day or whether, whether there's a front or a backside of a cold front, you know, or, um, you know, or just if there's just a little bit of light precip or like the wind being like five to 10 to 15 miles per hour, anything over that they don't like, but like in that range, it's like, they're really comfortable and they'll like to move. Do you see any, any differences there? Or do you see kind of the same thing in both places? So I see it's, it's bizarre. I'm, um, I take notes on everything because I, I'm always trying to improve on, on my hunting. I mean, I'd love to go out and just, you know, be the most efficient predator i can be and i'm always blown away by what makes deer move so i'd say about 80 percent of the time i get movement that's textbook like textbook what you would read in anything as far as you know moons overhead moons underfoot uh barometric pressure is high or the pressure is falling you know i see deer feeding (coughs) all the time however there will be times where I drive by, you know, a field on my way home and there'll be 30 deer in it. And you, you're like, okay, well, why are they there right now? Right. Well, it's hot. 
the moon's not doing anything and the pressure is at like 28 and a half. Mm -hmm. I'm like, why are they there? Mm -hmm. There's no reason for them to be there. So my best guess is that something else has pushed them there and they just happened to be up feeding them, you know? So like, let's say some dog ran through or a coyote ran through and, and blew them out into a field or for whatever reason, you just happen to see a ton of deer. I just think there's so many extra factors that come into play that I'm not aware of that that contributes to them moving and that kind of really taints all of my data to some degree because then theoretically if they're moving then then why didn't that extracurricular factor cause them to move when I thought it was a traditional quote unquote thing so right um, yeah but to, to that I mean I still try to pick weather events to, on days that I hunt. So now uh, that my Bambino is here, uh, she's six months old. Nice. Congrats, um, man. Yeah, thanks. It is pretty awesome. Father's Day morning, actually, my uh, nice. my wife gave birth. So, um, but, you know, it's it's funny. I was talking to one of my buddies the other day, and I was like, dude, this sucks. You know, I, I can't hunt at all this year. He's like, well, what are you talking about, dude? You're hunting a bunch. I was like, no, I can only hunt three days a week. <laughs> and uh, he was like, F you, dude. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And I was like, what? He goes, seriously, man? He's like, people would give their left nut to be able to hunt that much, and you're complaining about it. Exactly. And he's like, you're going to get 160, 175 hunts in this year. Yep. And yeah, it's just one of those things where it's all relative. Yep. And, um, you know, to me – if I'm used to hunting every day or hunting in the morning, going to work for a little bit and come back hunting in the afternoon on, you know, days where we have a lot of sun or whatever, um, you know, that's one thing. And then for me to be, to have to restrict that to what I'm thinking of as only three days a week and trying to pick the right weather events, uh, is kind of funny. But right. so what, what I've done is I've been looking at the different weather patterns. So I always look for changes in temperature, uh, from from the previous day or previous couple of days, those are a huge thing for me to want to get in the woods. So mm-hmm. if it's you know, 60, 60, and then tomorrow morning it's going to be 35 and the pressure's high, that's huge for me. Like I'm, I'm circling that on my calendar. Or, um, you know, high barometric pressure events or any day where the moon is uh, overhead or underfoot within the last couple hours of the day or you know, within the first couple hours of the day, I'll hunt that period as well. So those right. tend to work out really well for me. And I think those are the pretty standard traditional, um, you know, hunting triggers, if you will. Right. Yeah. I mean, for me this year, it's, I was, this was actually the first year that I was able to follow the weather as much as, as much as I could. Um, just because this is the first year I really had a property that was, you know, within 20 minutes of my house. So I'd take like, you know, half day at work where I work from home in the morning and then take a half day and then go hunt the evening or whatever. And so I was able to follow some weather patterns and stuff like that. The unfortunate thing was, was that I kind of saw the same thing as you is that the majority of the stuff, you know, those, those, you know, trigger events, you know, temp barometric pressure, et cetera, like all those things kind of fell into place. And I saw the movement you would suspect it always just seemed to happen the second day. So there would be a big weather change, like a 10, 15 degree drop. You know what I mean? The first day I would go hunt it. I wouldn't, I would see maybe a couple does or whatever. Um, and then the next day you know, I wouldn't hunt, you know, cause the temp maybe raised by five degrees or four degrees or whatever. Um, and then the second day was whenever I would, whenever I would have the deer on camera. 
So it was one of those things where it was I was losing the cat and mouse game on, on yeah. that one. But it was holding true. Like whenever the weather events hit, they were they were definitely moving, but it just seemed to be not saying they didn't move the first day, they just weren't moving near me the first day, you know. So that, that's interesting. I mean, what I tend to look for is I want the and I've had the most success on the first day of that weather system coming through. Uh, but I also want there to be the the higher the cloud cover, the higher the barometric pressure relative to the day prior and the higher the wind speed mm-hmm. i find the better movement and um i've actually read some studies where there's a direct correlation between higher wind speed and higher deer movement mm-hmm. that's contradictory to everything that i've read growing up mm-hmm. um but i've read a couple of things lately that that say that so um I'm I'm testing it out, although I'm not super inclined to be in a tree when it's over like 25 miles an hour. <laughs> I'm I'm a big dude. I'm I'm six three and uh, right. 200 240 pounds. So right. that's, that's a big pinata getting pushed around <laughs> at the top of a top of a little tree. So. Right, right. Actually, it's I heard I, I had a I had someone I can't think who it was. I had someone on the podcast that actually we were talking about the same thing where they were talking about the wind speed that's optimal for deer movement is actually a lot higher than what people would what people would think um like the i think they were saying like the optimal wind speed like a lot of people want to hunt those like five mile per hour kind of days or whatever but they were like actually like the 10 to 15 even getting close to 20 is like like is when you'll see a lot of deer movement you know yeah the, the person that i was talking to about this um they were like well imagine this if your best defense is your nose mm-hmm. wouldn't you want it windier and i was like well to some extent Yes, but at some point, doesn't the wind diminish my ability to smell my, you know, a predator? Yeah, I would say, I would say it's like, and how I kind of thought of it was that as long as it was consistent, right, you were getting a consistent wind, I think is what they would like. And I don't know this to be true, but like, if I'm just thinking about it academically, I would think as long as the wind and, and I'm getting a true wind, then I would want a higher wind because yes, I'm, I'm. I presume that it's bringing more scent to me from further away, you know, because it's traveling faster. It's like, that would be my rationale. If it's swirling though, and it's kind of going, you know, like say a nor'easter kind of blows through or whatever, and you're hunting like the backside of some, something that blew through, it's like, maybe not because that wind is just unpredictable. You know what I mean? And that would be an instance where I would think maybe it doesn't, maybe it wouldn't bode well for, for the deer, but I'm of course just making all this up on the spot right now. So yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've seen a lot of good movement in the lower. I mean, what I'll try to do is get out of that wind into a lower area yep. and, and hunt it. And I mean, you know, to your point on days where there's a consistent wind or even if it's a little swirly, then I I've seen good movement. It's been more of me getting out of the tree as opposed to, you know, right. hanging tough. Yeah. Um, Actually, this year, one of the better days, and it was like November 5th or 6th, we had 25 to 30 mile an hour winds with gusts up to like 60, mm-hmm. 50 or 60. It was a, a front was blowing through, and we were all about it. And then we're sitting in a tree, and the second tree that smashed down near me, I was like, F this, I'm out. <laughs> it's just like, I sent a text, I'm like, dude, I, I, I'm not hunting it when nice. there's giant branches and stuff blowing out of the tree. Um, yeah, yeah, that gets yeah. just the, just it's not little, worth it. Yeah, man, it just gets a little a little dicey. I actually had one fall. What was it? Two years ago, I think. Snap off, maybe like 
40 yards from me, like a huge tree just ate it. The whole thing came down. Yeah. And I was just like, it was one of those things where I watched it happen. Like it was almost happening in slow motion. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. And then, yeah, I promptly got down, changed my pants and, uh, (laughs) and and went home and was like, yeah, I think, uh, I think I'm good on that. But, uh, I want to shift gears here just for a second and talk a little bit about saddle hunting because we haven't even touched on the idea of saddle hunting yet. Um, I know that you are a, 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 a hardcore saddle hunter, if I'm not mistaken. That's your, prim- that's your primary method of, of getting it done. Um, I just started saddle hunting this year for, my, for the uh, first go around. And I got to say, man, it's uh, only deer I killed this year was out of a saddle. Um, it was one of my very early, um, early sits too. It was, uh, I think the very end of September, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so I, I guess I want to ask first questions first is how long have you been saddle hunting? So I, I am a diehard saddle hunter. I started saddle hunting in 2008 and, um, I couldn't tell you the last time I sat in a traditional stand. I'd have to think about it. It's probably about a year ago. And I mean, I, I just, I can't, I have trouble sitting in a regular tree stand now. I feel completely exposed and it is super uncomfortable compared to a saddle for me. Um, saddles are a phenomenal way to hunt, but I think the learning curve is a little steep on them. So it mm-hmm. takes a little while to get used to it. Plus I think it's a, it's an awkward feeling to be hanging from a rope and and having that reinforcement of you know weight in your in your butt uh, hiked out over your platform, so it's kind of like a leap of faith to some or a hang of faith. Um, but once you get a hang of that, no pun intended, and, and right. once you get you know you're confident in your system and you realize you know how many benefits there are to saddle hunting. I find it really hard to go back to, to hunting from anything but a saddle. So, I mean, for me, um, I started saddle hunting when I was hunting, when I'd moved back to the area and was, um, was hunting on that military base because I would hike way back in. I'd, I'd find these, you know, little topographic features way back in the middle of nowhere and then I'd hike back there with my GPS and I'd find that spot and uh, then I'd hunt there. But what I was happening, what was happening to me was I'd hike all the way back in, I'd find a spot, I'd have my climber with me and then I wouldn't be able to find a tree I could climb. And then I'd start looking around with my flashlight up into all the trees and eventually I'd find a spot that was like 40 yards from the area I'd located on the map and then deer would come through, you know, maybe 60 yards away or whatever. But if I had been able to climb a tree in that exact spot, I would have been able to kill kill deer. So um, the guy who who had gotten me into urban hunting is also a saddle hunter. And okay. so I saw his saddle. He showed it to me, and I was like, dude, that's the coolest thing ever. <laughs> You know, I'd never seen one before. It was the the saddle that he had was the trophy line uh, saddle. And that was the only one that they made for the longest time, the the tree saddle. And uh, I went home that night. I bought one on eBay. I had no idea that the company was out of business and how hard they'd be to find. (laughs) And it came in um, and I just, you know, played around with it and got used to it. And so 
uh, from there, you know, I've owned various saddles and then, um, you know, was really happy that, uh, I got to team up with tethered and, mm-hmm. and some other guys and really, you know, help iron out the prototype and work with different prototypes and make suggestions and, uh, ultimately get to where we are with the, the tethered mantis and, and the predator platform for anybody who hasn't, you know, check that out. Uh, definitely look at the tethered saddle and the, the platform that tethered makes as well, because that was the age old problem with saddle hunting was, you know, you have this saddle. Okay. This is a better way to hunt. We get it. You can't fall out. It's lighter. You can hunt any tree, blah, blah, blah. But what do you do with your feet? Yeah. That, that was the hardest thing. And, you know, people were using those Ameristep steps, but they'd been discontinued since the early 2000s. They're really hard to find. And, you know, still with the steps, you know, your knees go into the tree and you have a, a flat point of contact at some spot on your foot that will ultimately create a hot spot or yep. you know, a, a contact point. So uh, that, that platform is just a super game changer and it's really even changed the way that I hunt because what I used to do is I would prep trees. So, I mean, I had, I, I guess anywhere between 200, 250 trees. No, that's not right. I probably had 75 or 80 trees, uh, that I had sticks in, you know, ready to climb wow. a couple of years ago. And with the screw and steps all around the top. So I, all I did was climb up, be ready to go. Right. Well, for me, I'd rather be mobile, but it's just kind of a pain in the ass if I'm going to go in for a quick hunt. Um, so now that that predator platform is out, I can go in and just take my wild edge steps and just go up any tree I want. And I have a bunch that are prepped. I mean, I probably have over a thousand, closer to 1100 trees right now. Jeez. prepped to climb within a 15 minute drive of my house to hunt from. And, um, so I don't need to worry about all those steps because what happened was when I, when I was using all these different ladder sections over time, you know, maybe I wouldn't hunt a spot for six months or, you know, somewhere out there for three or four years. And then I climb up, I realized they're all rusty. You know, the straps are bad. I, I just would rather not have to deal with that. And so if I can just put, you know, mark a tree on my, on my Onyx with my little thumbtack, right. and then I know it would come back to it. I use five wild edge steps with an aider. Uh, I can get up any tree and like, I mean, God, it takes like five minutes uh, and I'm up at the top and I film on my hunt. So it'll take me 15 minutes to set up all my camera gear. But right. I mean, the, um, you know, that system for me with that, with that platform is just a total game changer. And uh, I'm not trying to plug all this crap. It's just, I'm a, I'm a complete gear nut. And so I've tried everything and I'm really critical of my gear when I, when I play around and test with stuff. And so this is what I've found over literally hundreds and hundreds of hunts to work the best uh, for me. And, you know, I, I think one of the things that, that I really prefer is, I know the area that the deer are going to come through for the most part. But what I want to do is I want to keep the deer guessing as to where the danger is. So I will always hunt, you know, I might be hunting the same kill spot, but I'll hunt five different trees all around it or eight different trees all around it or however many trees I need to hunt around it. But I want the deer to keep guessing. 
uh, there's so many places that I hunt that I might not have uh, sole permission on where a guy has a tree stand hung. I, I killed a big buck this year doing this. I, a deer came in and stopped and for five minutes, maybe longer, was looking up at a hang-on tree stand that I was 12 yards from hmm. and stared a hole through that tree stand. And finally, once he realized that hunter wasn't there, he walked in and I killed him. Right. And, you know, I was 12 yards away, but I was on the other side of where that deer was coming in from. And he had no clue I was there. Yeah. And, you know, when I'm, when I'm hunting, you know, I'm always going to, I'll kill a couple deer out of that tree and then I'm going to hunt a different tree, different tree. And I won't hunt that same tree for a year or maybe longer because I just don't want them to know, especially when they're herded up. Like right now, I mean, I'll get eight, 10, 12 deer to come through. I'm, I'm only able to kill one of them. Then I'll pick off another one, you know, when they don't realize what happened, but they realize that that area has danger associated with it and they'll pick out that tree eventually. And then they'll just avoid the area altogether. And that's what I don't want. Right. Yeah. No, I, I hear you, man. I actually, <clears throat> I was, I used a, a tethered this year as well. That's what I was, what I ended up hunting out of Greg is, is aces, man. Good dude. Um, had him on the show. Actually, he's getting ready to come back on the show. Um, just awesome guy, killer, killer product. Like you mentioned, the predator platform for me was, was the game changer. Um, it, for me, it was, it was, uh, being, um, I guess something familiar, right? Cause coming from hunting out of a tree stand, it's like that platform just allowed me to have enough of a transition that was familiar. Yeah. It bridges um, the gap really yeah. kind of between like hardcore saddle hunting and, and what you're familiar with traditionally. Right. Exactly. And what you mentioned being mobile, that's like, I don't have any prep trees anywhere, you know, like the, I hunt that piece of public swamp and then everything I hunt in Ohio is all public. Even the, the family property that I have, it's like, I don't really have any trees prepped there necessarily um either so everything for me is a hang and hunt pretty much every every set um and that saddle was kind of instrumental in that and then when i was in ohio i it allowed me to make a change to a tree that was literally as big around as my thigh at the base and probably about as big around as my as my calf uh, at climbing height and when i made that move you know i, I sat that uh i guess two two days or one and a half days but the last day I hunted it, it was, uh, I, I was there from sun up till like noon and saw three bucks and six deer in total, you know? So it was just that small move that was maybe 15 yards from the tree that I was in previously was the difference between seeing all those deer and getting shot opportunities passed, but still had shot opportunities and, and not having a shot opportunity. So that was, a. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I like it. And it's way more comfortable than people, people want to think that it is, um, I really didn't have any trouble shooting out of it necessarily. Um, th that all kind of came pretty quickly to me. Um, but I would definitely say like anyone who's going to try it out, you definitely want to do a little backyard practice with it just to kind of get familiar. Cause it is a different feeling, but totally. And, and I highly recommend anyone who's going to hunt from one, set it up, you know, eight inches off the ground first yeah. and play around <laughs> with it and, and check it out. I mean, you have no chance of falling from the actual saddle, you literally cannot fall out of one. I've hunted, I mean, God, 10 years. I've probably put who knows how many thousand hunts into into saddles, but I've never had anywhere close to a moment where I was thought I was going to fall or anything. But, yeah. um, you know, learning to hunt, learning how to shoot out of that platform is definitely an interesting thing. I mean, you need to 
you have to learn how to pivot and move your feet. And Greg has some great videos on YouTube yeah, for that. Yep. Um, but I mean, once you get used to the saddle, I, I just don't see how you can go back to a stand there. I mean, my entire setup weighs less than 10 pounds and that's my mobile setup. Right. You know, that, that has my sticks in it or my, my steps with my aider, my ropes are on my side and I have my backpack and my bow and, it's streamlined. It weighs nothing. It's, you know, people ask me all the time, how is that thing comfortable? I'm like, dude, that thing's as comfortable, if not more comfortable than my recliner and my man cave. Yeah. You know, cause that's how, that's the angle that I'm, I'm leaning in it. Mm-hmm. I'm leaning back like, I'm, you know, 45 degrees in a man cave. And also if you, if you look up in the trees right now, or, you know, whenever people are listening to this and, and you look at what branches do, and look at what your your silhouette looks like from a tree stand. Exactly. Versus what it looks like in the saddle. Everything grows either vertically or, or hanging off at a 45 degree angle uh, or something, you know, some V type angle in the woods. And I can't tell you how many deer I've had that they might have seen me move completely. Like I could be you know, reaching from something in my backpack or whatever. They'll see the movement. They'll look up and they'll pause for a minute and then they'll just go back to doing whatever they're doing because they just have no clue that that, you know, 240 pound squirrel up there has sharp right. sticks and it's ready to right. you know, fling them at them. But, uh, it, you know, I have not found a, a, a con against saddle hunting. I mean, it, yeah. the earlier saddles were, were uncomfortable, um, they had shorter bridges, and for bigger dudes, there was a lot of hip pinch involved with that. You really couldn't hunt more than like three hours or so out of one. Right. But the combination of the new saddle with the platform, man, I mean, I've sat dark to dark uh, countless times, mm-hmm. and it is just super, super comfortable. Yeah, and this was, this was my first year using it, and I sat dark to dark. You know, So it wasn't like, you know, even as a new saddle hunter it's like i was able to do the the all the all day sets without without a problem and I, the other thing that i like about it like you're talking about this you know the kind of looking like a you know a big branch up there with the angle that you're leaning in you know i go back and forth between leaning and sitting just depending you know what i mean which is really especially if you use like a ropeman one it's really easy to kind of adjust your your bridge and your your uh, tether height you know what i mean so you can kind of go back and forth between the two if you don't want to stand the entire time but the thing that i really liked about it was that the doe that I shot this year, it was literally, I hid behind the tree from her because she was, I was going to have to shoot her from my weak side, but I was like, you know what, if I, I, since I had the saddle, I didn't have to make that shot. I ended up swinging all the way around the tree on the opposite side of the tree and shot her from the strong side. So I had an easier shot. So it allowed me to pick how I wanted to shoot. Um, and then I actually was able to stay behind the tree until she, in and, and draw while I was behind the tree. That way, whenever she finally presented a shot, I just kind of peeked out around the opposite side and let it rip. And that was, that was it. You know, it's awesome. It, yeah. it makes you a tree ninja. <laughs> I'm full on a tree ninja. But the yeah. next thing I'm playing around with now is actually, um, it's actually something Greg and I are going to cover a little bit. I'm, I'm starting to play around a little bit now with like climbing methods. Cause I, this year was my first year. So I just ended up using my lone wolf sticks, which was fine. But I definitely want to do something that's a little lighter. Um, so I'm 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 kind of looking at you know 
an, a, a five-step aider with uh, just one stick probably. And I have an aider kind of attached to the bottom, of, like a one-step aider at the bottom of the lone wolf stick as well. Thinking of using that. I'm also thinking of just going like the, the old SRT method with like rappelling out without steps. So I'm kind of, uh, I don't know if I can pull that off though or not. I don't know that every tree would be appropriate for it, but I'm going to do a little experimenting this year, I think. That that was my like biggest fear. Um, so one of the things that I've tried this year are the the bolts. Mm-hmm. So the easy easy cut hand drill or the whatever that's called uh, with some grade eight bolts that just slide into the, the drilled out hole. Mm-hmm. If you're able to drill spots on like private land, that is really awesome because. They don't go anywhere. The bolts weigh nothing and super silent slide right in out. And there's no trace that you were there. And those little holes heal up pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, the wild edge steps for me were like a total game changer because prior to those, I was using my lone wolf sticks every time. Right. And, um, you know, I, I got in touch with the guys over at wild edge and, I ended up getting the uh, some of their steps, and I mean, I couldn't believe that I'd hunted as long as I did without them. Really? Uh, yeah, I don't know if you've ever used them. Are you familiar with the Wild Edge step? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've 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 not ever used them. I've seen them. I've held them. Like I, I get the concept. A buddy of mine has a, had a set of them that I was hunting with, and he had them in his box, so he kind of showed them to me because I'd never like looked at them or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I've never actually put them on a tree and used them. The the way that they they pack down into that pack is just game changer for me. So I've, I had kind of my own little carry sling that I made for my lone wolf, uh, sticks. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm six, three, so four lone wolf sticks can get me to like 21, 22 feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, no problem for where my feet are. Right. And with the wild edge sticks, of course, those four sticks weigh 10 pounds, right? Right. Uh, plus the strap. So, with the wild edge sticks, I can take a five step aider and I mean, I could hunt with just three, three of the wild edge steps, which weigh a pound each. And mm-hmm. I actually did that a little, but what I found was a lot of my trees in my area are crooked mm. or some of the trees I'm climbing are crooked or they have branches on them. Cause I want that, that back cover. And so it was easier for me to take six wild edge steps in, you know, and it, okay, it's six pounds instead of three, big deal. Right. Um, in that bag, and it's you just don't even realize it's there in my aider. Mm-hmm. So I'll just put you know a step at six feet, and I'll put one at four feet, and then I'll just climb up with my aider, and then keep setting them at, at six feet. And hmm. I mean, they are rock solid, they are silent, and they are super lightweight. And uh, that that combined with the saddle with the with the Predator platform for me has been phenomenal. Yeah. What about, what are you using for a pack? So I was using the mystery ranch pop-up 18. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is an awesome pack for putting those, those steps in. Mm-hmm. But um, so I film all my stuff and that was a little cumbersome for, or wasn't, didn't have enough pockets for me for all the camera gear and crap. So uh, anyone out there who films their own hunts, uh, they can probably sympathize with me that there is a ton of extra shit that ends up coming up the tree with you, yep. uh, especially for solo filming. So what I I went back to my Mystery Ranch Treehouse pack, mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that pack, but it's it's basically a big square pack, and it has a little padding in there. It's made for tree stand hunting. There's just one big main compartment, and it has a little little pockets on the insides uh, that I can drop some lenses into for my DSLR, mm-hmm. and then uh, you know my video camera and all that setup. So that's what I've been using now. What I'll do is I put my saddle on at the truck. Well, well, one thing I think is important to note: I never uh, drive around in my camo. I always change into my camo at the property just because where I'm hunting is so high profile. Yep. Um, so I don't want to be like driving around in my pickup truck with camo on. Right. Um, and also my truck, I don't have any stickers or anything hunting yeah. related on there. It just looks like a normal work truck. But I'll pull up, throw my camo on, uh, throw my saddle on throw my backpack on with all the you know stuff in it and then i'll throw that wild edge bag on over my shoulder and i mean it literally you cannot feel the the bag there it's pretty awesome nice yeah because that's the next thing like the two things i need to really kind of figure out this year is one you know what i'm going to use specifically for my climbing method and then two you know this year i just i used a a pack that i've taken western hunting you know because it was able to kind of attach all my head straps and stuff that i could you know batten down the hatches if you will with my with all my sticks and stuff like that and get them you know get them into the woods without too much too much trouble but this year i want to try to figure out how i can streamline you know what i'm taking in and in the size of things because you know when you're hunting in a saddle it's like i want to have i want to be as i want to have i want to limit as much stuff as possible being in the tree because i don't really want to have anything hanging around me if i can avoid it that's essentially you know i want to i'd like to have a pack that has a little smaller profile yeah, totally. And one of the other things that I've done that Greg actually uh, came up with this idea was taking a daisy chain with a um, carabiner on on mm-hmm. the front of it and clipping it onto itself around the tree, and then using one of those gear ties S hooks mm-hmm. uh, and clipping that on to use as a bow hanger. Mm-hmm. That has saved me more time yeah. and made it so much easier for me because what I'll do is I'll just throw that around the tree instead of screwing in my one pack holder and bow yep. holder. And then I'll put my backpack completely on the opposite side of the tree for mm-hmm. me. Yep. And that really helps break that, that outline up as well. hundred percent. Yeah. I have something similar to that. And then I also use a, a homemade um, small tether made out of paracord that I actually hang my pack on with a, with like a little prisic that I make that way I can pull my pack up and down and hang it off to like the side of me can kind of move it around the tree or bring it back over to me. However, you know, wherever I want it or whatever, and can kind of change the height on it, which has saved me a ton of time too from screwing crap in. So look at you man you're you're a natural saddle hunter you're already tinkering with stuff and, yeah uh... <laughs> dude it's, it's in my nature man i, I like to tink. i'm a tinkerer you know what i mean so it, it appeals to me because there's just like i just like the diy nature of it man that's like that's why i'm all interested to kind of figure out what my climbing method's going to be this year because i'm like there's a lot of options to get up the tree you know and it's just a matter of what's going to you know work best for you you know what i mean and i'm really kind of interested in the whole idea of repelling because the part that i hate the most is getting out of the tree like, I hate that part. Like, I don't know why. Like, I'm, I have no problem with heights, nothing. Didn't matter. Like, saddle, tree stand, doesn't matter. Like, I just don't like climbing out of a tree, like, after dark. Like, because I can't see my feet, you know, and stuff like that. And in a saddle, it's like, you're not going to fall. But I also don't want to, like, miss a step and smash my face off a stick either. You know what I mean? So Yeah, I, I would, I've made a, made a pretty good point of avoiding that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, one, so, one thing that I found that's actually really helpful, I took a uh, silver Sharpie. Mm. Um and on the inside of the of the lone wolf step, I just put a circle 
mm-hmm. you know, filled in a circle on on all of the steps, and it's amazing how nice. well that lights up with your headlight when it hits it. But that's actually a really good idea. It, it's 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 funny because it's not so much when it's warmer out, like early fall. It's when my feet get cold and I can't feel them. That's yeah. whenever that's whenever I hate getting out of the tree because it's like I just I literally can't feel the steps. You know what I mean? So I'm like, is my foot on a step? I'm like, okay, it feels like I have pressure. Okay, I have pressure. I'm good. You know what I mean? It's like, and I'm just, I'm like, one of these days I'm going to slip and smash my face off the tree and it's going to suck. I was I like, not. yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like I'm not going to fall because I'm always tethered in. I'm always, I always have a lineman's belt on and stuff like that. You know what I mean? So it's like I'm, I, I practice, you know, I, I practice safety. But, uh, you know, it's just, if I can do, I just like the idea of repelling too. I think it'd just be cool. I would actually look forward to getting out of the tree if I repelled. I think that'd be really cool. Yeah. I, I was hunting with a buddy of mine. Um, and so he was like 40 yards from me and I had these two does come in and he's watching and I come to full draw and this doe stops behind a branch or behind a tree. That's like really only three inches in diameter if that. And I kept waiting for her to take a step out and she wouldn't. And so I just took my right foot and put it up on the tree kind of at my waist level and then pushed off with both my feet to get that extra, you know, angle to where mm-hmm. I had a clear shot at her vitals. And I shot her and she ran like 30 yards and piled up. And my buddy who was in a tree stand was going nuts. And he's like, that's the coolest <laughs> shit I've ever seen. You know, Cause he watched the whole thing. Uh, and, uh, awesome. so, yeah. He just keeps telling me that I'm a tree ninja now that, that that was just like the most radical thing he had ever seen in the woods. And uh, he actually ended up buying a saddle and now hunts for one. Nice. Perfect. Yeah. All because of, of that hunt that day. And he just thought it was so cool. Right. But I mean that, that part of the thing that's fun about the saddle to what you're saying in the DIY is, you know, when you buy a lone wolf tree stand and lone wolf sticks, that's what you get. Yep. Right. And you can maybe, you know, tie some paracord on it to silence where they hit together or whatever. But right. like that's the system. And with a saddle, the saddle is is just the beginning of the possibilities mm-hmm. as to how you can hunt. You can customize it so much, whether your climbing method or if you want to customize, you know, how you put your feet up or, you know, if you want to have a platform or the, you know, pl- plastic steps or the wild edge steps all around the tree i mean all those different options are so cool to be able to make the most ultimate hunting system for you and that's what's cool is because everyone's different we all have different needs we're all hunting different places why not have the the ability to adapt to your surroundings and and how you personally want to hunt yeah no, hundred percent, man. Like that's that's the thing that I liked about it the most. Like it was immediately like you could make it, you could personalize it. It's all what you need it and want it to be. You know what I mean? And if you would want to buy the system and just use some sticks and kind of like I did this year, and you just kind of use the system and 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 that's what you want to do, then then man, you can have great success doing that too. You know what I mean? It doesn't you don't necessarily have to, but for those out there, like you know, most hardcore you know whitetail hunters, it's like we're always kind of tinkering with our gear and personalizing it and modifying it and stuff like that to make it do what we want it to do. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't know that I've ever bought anything that just, I got it out of the box. I was like, yep, that's it. Taking it, taking it to the tree. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like, it always takes like an amount of like figuring out and silencing and stuff like that to say, okay, now this thing's worthy to head to the tree with me. But you know, it's uh, I don't know, man, it's cool. I, I, I really dig it. I don't, you know, envision myself really hunting out of a tree stand much, you know, going forward, except for maybe, 
some preset stuff that I have on some of the family properties just from a ease of use and, and speed to the into the tree type of perspective. But I even wear my saddle whenever I hunt out. If Because when I was in Ohio, I did hunt out of a stand because there was one tree that I had that historically I could get a stand into that I that I used. Um, and uh, I actually wore my saddle into the stand, and that's just what I used for my harness because I would also take my sticks. And then if I needed to make a move, I could get down and make a move, and I had all my saddle gear with me. So that was kind of why it was set up like that was here's a stationary spot, and if I need to pivot from here, then I can. I have my stuff to do. I don't have to tear down the set to, to, to make the move, um, which worked great. And, dude, I felt way safer even being in a tree stand wearing my saddle as my as my harness. Yeah. Than I than I did with like a, a, a traditional uh, you know safety harness. So. Oh, for sure. Well, because you can swing around the tree. I mean, the mm-hmm. the fact that you can keep the tree. I mean, first of all, all of its climbing rated gear. It, yeah. It's rated to like you know Ridiculous thousands weight. of kilonewtons yeah. as <laughs> yeah. opposed to you know just barely making the three hundred pound minimum for yeah uh, for the TSA. But I mean. And I was actually talking about this with somebody the other day. You know, he was like, well, when you're in a tree stand, you're on a metal platform relying on two cables that have been exposed to the elements for God knows how long. Yep. And one tiny little bolt. Yep. You know? And and with your saddle, you have all this rope that is used – people are trusting their life on, on Everest to. You know? Yep. I mean, what's 20 feet off the ground for that? Right. So. Yeah, exactly. Like literally like the weight rating for that buckle and the straps are like, you could drop a Volkswagen from six feet. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? And, it, and, I it, think, and it's going to uh, hold up. I think somebody took some amp steel on one of those wild edge steps and like pulled their ATV up onto the step on a tree. And it was totally fine with the winch. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't doubt it, man. Cause those things are like amp steel, that quarter inch amp steel is rated for like 7,000 pounds or something like yeah. that. Well, that's what it's made for is yeah. for winch work on ATV. So yep. yeah, I mean the, the saddle, I understand where people look at that and they're like, you hunt out of that. Like, what is that? Yeah. Uh, but once they get past that initial point, I think it's pretty easy to, to realize, Hey, this is better than, than the traditional tree stand. And, um, yeah, I highly recommend checking out those bolts for their, for your preset spots. Uh, they're, they're pretty cool. Nice. Yeah, I'll have to give those a whirl. But uh man, we've uh we've covered a lot of ground, brother. I think we're uh, <laughs> I think I think we're good, man. I think we touched on just about just about everything. We talked about babies, we talked about hunting heritage, we talked about saddle hunting, urban hunting. I don't even know what else we threw in there. Some 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 holiday cheer we threw in there too. You yeah, know, we started started talking about meat and uh, yeah. all kinds of fun stuff on there. So yeah, man, that that was a blast. Nice Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you bet, man. Before I let you go, though, man, like if you wouldn't mind, just uh, give folks a heads up as to where they can find out more about you and, and follow along with your antics. Yeah, Instagram is the the best place to find me. It's Urban Bowman. Um, also, we a group of buddies and I have. Um, hunt.urban and we're going to be coming out with a follow-up on the film of uh kind of a day-to-day series of of you know fun stuff you see in the suburbs and and hunts from the from the stand and video so uh check that out on youtube when it when it comes out nice cool well i'll, I'll be sure to check out the hunt.urban I, I look forward to uh seeing what you got going on on there and thanks for coming on man i appreciate it and let's uh let's make sure we stay in touch and i'll see if i can't get you up to one of those farms next year sounds good man have car and bow will travel so <laughs> nice. thanks again for thanks for having me on and uh look forward to chatting soon all right brother i appreciate it
All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. We'd like to thank Taylor for joining. Be sure to give him a follow on Instagram. And, of course, I'm sure he'll be posting things there as he uh, nears the launch of the um, Urban Hunt, Urban Dot Hunt, the uh, the site that will have all the uh, video content from you know the the, the day-to-day hunts that, that he and his buddies are going on in the uh, in the urban setting. So stay on the lookout for that. I'll put the links uh, to to his Instagram, Facebook, etc., in the blog post show notes so you guys can easily find them. We'd of course like to thank all of you for listening. If you haven't yet, please head over to the i to to the iTunes. Yeah, to the iTunes. Please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done that yet. We'd be super appreciative if you'd be able to do those two things for us. And before we shut this thing down, we need to give a big shout out to our partners that continue to help us make this podcast possible. Wicked Tree Gear, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Trophy Ridge, Ozonics, Obsession Bows, Tecamani Seed, Glacier Coolers, Ramcat Broadheads, Trophy Taker Rests, and Dead Down Wind. And until next time, We'll see y'all. Damaged heads, broken letters. Rationalize yourself in numbers. But I gotta get away from here. Gotta get away from here. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do hard shit hat for those of us who like to embrace microdosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern, presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.